Hi, Liza Mayor. Thank you. I'd like to call to order the City Council meeting of July the 5th, 2023. Tonight's meeting is a hybrid meeting. Community members are welcome to join us either in person or remotely through Zoom or by telephone. <coughs> Clerk, will you please call the roll? Councilmember Nixon? Here. Councilmember Black? Here. Councilmember Curtis? Here. Councilmember Falcone? Here. Councilmember Pascal? Here. Deputy Mayor Arnold? Here. Mayor Sweet? Here. Thank you. Our study session tonight is a discussion on a potential parks ballot measure draft ordinance. We expect to reconvene our regular meeting at approximately 7.30. City Manager. Okay, uh, thank you, Madam Mayor, members of council. Uh, so tonight is our last sort of discussion opportunity before we're gonna be asking council to make final decisions on the July 18th council meeting. So we're definitely looking for your final input, suggestions, comments, edits, and so forth on the presentation tonight. Um, before we begin, I wanted to make sure that you all saw, we did finally um, receive uh, the letter of intent from the Washington State Department of Transportation that came to us and we were able to get it signed today. I've had a chance to email it to all of you, but you may not have seen it because that came later this afternoon. Uh, I want to say a special thanks to Robin uh, from WashDOT. She's been extraordinarily working on the, getting this through the team, as well as Beth Goldberg. They worked really hard on this over the last two days to get it signed. So. We now have that in the packet. A key piece of the letter of intent is that uh, WashDOT does intend to sell it to us and for the $9 million purchase price that we discussed. Uh, the letter was reviewed by our city attorney. While there are certainly things we might tweak on it if we could, we felt that uh, since it's not yet binding and it's gonna be replaced by a purchase and sale agreement, uh, that it made sense to go ahead and sign it. So we at least now have that actual physical document as part of the presentations for the today and July 18th. So very excited about that piece of information. So. Um, but with that, uh, to give you an overview of where we are now and ask you the qu final questions we have is Lynn Zwagstra, our Parks and Community Services Director. Thank you. Good evening, Madam Mayor, Deputy Mayor, and City Council. As you know, we're here this evening to continue our conversation on the Parks Ballot Measure. Presenting this evening would be me, as well as Hillary De La Cruz, our Management Analyst, Sri Krishnan, the Deputy Director of Finance, and back by special invitation is Deanna Gregory, our bond counsel with Pacifica Law Group, and she is joining us virtually this evening. There we go. Uh, we have 18 slides for you this evening, which is a drastic reduction for many of our other presentations <laughs> with 60 plus slides. Uh, the first section is the financial analysis and levy rates, and that will be uh, Shri and Hillary. Then we'll go on to the ballot measure title language and proceed from there into the ordinance authorizing the ballot language. So th those are our three primary sections. 
And that at the end, we'll kind of um, finish with a little update on the timeline and any next steps necessary for the ballot measure. And on that note, I will hand it over to Shri. Excellent. Good evening, Mayor, Deputy Mayor and Council. Um, so we wanted to just take a moment at the very beginning and walk through the base levy for the city and what the impact of the 20% assessed valuation decrease has on it. Um, the table in front of you is also in the memo and we're gonna walk through it in sort of columns by talking about what has happened in 2023, what we're projecting for 2024 with the 20% reduction and what the changes are. Um, the bottom line is to let you know that uh, the impact on the property tax levy itself is roughly 24 cents. Um, so we're gonna start off by just talking about 2023. That's information that we have had from, um, the I was about to say state, the King County Assessor's Office. And um, walking through that, you'll notice that we end up with uh, a regular levy of 86.48 uh, or 418 cents. Um, the assumptions that we're making to project what the 2024 levy rate would be on just the regular levy is assuming that we'll have a 20% reduction in the assessed value, which is shown in the total assessed valuation number, which you'll notice goes down from 48 million to 38.68 um, billion. And in terms of calculating our property tax and the levy rate, we always also include the new construction number. We have gone ahead and assumed a new construction of $456,167,000, which is around 11% uh, of um, the total assessed value, which is what was in 2023 as well. Um, and then the new construction is calculated on the basis of the levy rate, which is the 0.86418 you see at the bottom of this column there, which gives you the 394,000 that's in the second column there, um, the third row down. Uh, we've also assumed corrections about $50,000, which is around the average that we have seen over the years, uh, which brings us to a total levy of $42,647,026. But because of the 20% reduction, you'll notice that the levy rate, the property tax rate at the very bottom of the table, has gone from 0.86418 to $1.10 to 5.6, a change of a little under 24 cents per thousand. Um, and as you're all well familiar, um, the council sets the levy amount and the assessor sets the levy rate. Um, but the levy rate calculation is important for us in this case as we're setting the ballot language and that requires us to set both the levy amount and a maximum levy rate. Um, so, as I mentioned earlier, many of these changes you'll notice are primarily at the bottom half of the table there with assessed valuation dropping 20% and related new construction numbers are lower and the total assessed valuation is lower, which then translates to us assuming a 1% increase as the council has done in the past um, and assuming a $50,000 corrections and assuming the new construction value comes in at about the same ratio as it has in the past we would see that even to collect the 2024 projected levy, it would be an increase in levy rate of about 24 cents. Questions on any of that? Okay. 
Um, primary question to the council on this part of it is whether council still feels comfortable with the 20% um, <coughs> reduction in the assessed value. Um, and as a note, we want to set the rate just right, actually, if at all possible, if, because if the rate is set too high, then um, as we have noted in the ordinance that's being drafted, the council is also making a, um, a commitment not to levy more than we will need for this ballot measure. Councilor Sessions? I think just to highlight for the council and the public that's watching that we probably won't get any more information from the assessor between now and July 18th, uh, which is the time you have to act. If we do, we'll obviously share that, but this is basically the best information we have at the time, and so we're making our projection uh, thoughtful but a little bit conservative. Uh, we have a section of the city that was assessed at 18% drop in valuation, and we know that a section of Sammamish was, was assessed at a 22% drop in valuation. So. Uh, that, that's what sort of set us up for the 20% average overall across the city. Deputy Mayor Arnold. And <clears throat> Shree, to, to confirm, as we're talking about the ballot measure here, the cost to a median million-dollar home of what they pay annually isn't going to change as this levy rate fluctuates. Correct. The ballot measure. And we'll get to that as well in a minute. But in the memo, we did note that. We're trying to keep it around the $232 number. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, I, I saw enough head nods to get us through that. Uh, yep. The best financial brains are yours. So. <laughs> I think that would be George Dugdale. Fortunately, he'll be back. <laughs> um, this is the part where I'm going to have Lynn come back and walk us through this. Or is it going to be, oh, it's going to be Hillary. Good evening, council members. Um, so this is another table that was in your memo, and I'm just going to walk through it because there's a lot of information in this table. So this slide is really showing the evolution of the total ballot package investment cost estimating that we've done. And we wanted to share this with you to show how the estimated levy amount um, got, the dollar amount got to the $10,800,000 before further discussing the levy rate calculation specific to the ballot measure. And it's important to note that um, the debt service on the limited tax general obligation um, bonds, or LTGO bonds, which is the third column in this table, um, will be paid with general fund dollars. And in order to free up the general fund, some of the current parks operations are moved to the levy fund, as has been outlined in the memo and will be discussed later as well. And finally, before I dive into this, as you saw in the memo, the first three rows of this table were estimated in 2023 dollars. And that was for a comparison with what we are discussing with PFEC members. And all other packages, which is rows four through six, are estimated in 2024 dollars with our kind of more detailed financial modeling that we've been doing over the past few weeks. And so I just share that because you can't quite compare apples to apples the first three rows and the second three rows. If you were going to do that, you would need to add some sort of inflationary adjustment to the first three rows. So starting with row one. Um, that is the PFEC base package recommendation, which had the PFEC priority elements, um, which is the aquatics and recreation center and five additional elements, and used the numbers um, that, PFEC, that staff calculated for PFEC in 2022. And so this included capital and operating costs, and capital costs had things like design contingencies and construction contingencies. Um, and the costs were estimated in 2022 dollars, and then we inflated those to 2023 dollars using various inflation rates provided um, by our different staff in different departments in the city. And the, so we 
had the 2023 dollars, which built this up, and then the only cost that was estimated in 2025 dollars was the capital cost related to the Aquatics and Recreation Center. That um, on the so those costs were in 2025 dollars. And within this estimating, we weren't doing any projections of implementation timeline or the cost escalation past 2023. We were just kind of looking at what this would cost and knowing that inflation would happen both with the cost every year and any revenue associated and then also with um, the, the revenue from a levy. And the, in that modeling as well, all of our capital costs were assumed to be bonded because we didn't yet have um, the funding mechanism identified and so we were bonding those and annualizing the debt service payments over the bonds. And we had some rounding and we also had some um, one-time costs that were kind of added in to those as well. So rows two, three, and four all have the exact same elements in them. And those are the elements that are in council's recommended package, which Lynn has a slide that will show um, members of the public and council as a reminder, all of those elements in a few slides. Um, but those are the ones that you chose at your meeting in, on June 20th. And so the first row of this, this chunk, the row two there, includes the priority elements and uses the same rounded and more simple numbers as PFEC saw, which are the numbers that staff have been using with council in discussions of the element selection during the past few meetings. And then row three has the same elements, but then updates the cost estimates um, still in 2023 dollars with the primary adjustment was that um, the Aquatics and Recreation Center positions were previously costed in 2022 dollars, so we adjusted those to be 2023 dollars as the base um, pay scales. And then also there were a few other um, adjustments that were related to some of the collective bargaining agreements that have been reached since, but all of the other positions related to elements had already been in 2023 dollars. It was just the Aquatics and Recreation Center dollar amount that went up more, as you saw in some of the detailed um, charts in the memo. And so those, all of those adjustments together made that kind of jump from line two to line three around $500,000. So line three is the real line. Yes, so line three is the kind of, the package that you were talking about, the real package in 2023 dollars. Um, yes, please do ask me question, clarifying questions if you have any, because I know there's a lot of information here. So then line four um, is when we are going to shifting to having the more detailed financing model that was discussed um, in the council packet and Sri will outline a little bit more. So that is when we were really taking these and now talking in 2024 dollars um, and looking at things um, about looking at the implementation and the sequencing years of when things would start and doing some more in-depth work. And as you can see, um, line, rows four through six all use 30-year debt financing compared to the 20-year that was used in the PFEC and the other rows above. And those um, bonds would, of course, be paid from the general fund. And using the 30-year financing on the bonds reduces the overall estimated levy amount um, for 2024, as you can see in this kind of sequence of the three in the square on your screen. And so row five has the same, everything the same as row four. Um, the, two, the kind of slight adjustment that's made in row five is um, reducing the amount of the facility that is paid with pay-go capital slightly um, by 0.15%. Um, and that is partly to um, adjust for the two implementation positions, which include a management analyst and a park planning position. And Lynn will talk about those positions in a few minutes. And so that's kind of that um, recommended package that you saw in the memo, and that's the $10.8 million amount. 
And then the last row, row six, demonstrates what the total package would look like if, um, with the staff recommended addition of a third position, which is the communications program specialist position. And then we'll also discuss that in a couple minutes. Um, so I am gonna turn it over to Shree, but if you had any kind of questions while we're on here, I could take those now, but also Shree's gonna talk a little bit after me about how this translates into the levy rate itself. Like I mentioned, Lynn's gonna talk about kind of rows five and six and those positions themselves, and we can always come back to this as well if we wanna continue on and hear what they have to say before asking questions about this. A question. Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, I actually have a question for Shree, so it's great that you're <laughs> uh, coming up next. Uh, I had a question on your previous slide that I didn't think of until, Hillary, you started this slide, and I didn't want to interrupt you, um, so thank you for humoring me. You mentioned that we're being conservative with the estimate of 20%, um, a 20% drop in assessed value. Are we at risk if it drops more than that? Like, what happens if it drops by more than 20%? Are we then not getting <clears throat> enough money to, to build the facility, or what happens in that situation? So there are two parts to this, and I'm probably also going to be leaning towards the attorney to help us out on this. Um, one, we set the levy amount, and we'll do that both here in the ballot measure that uh, ordinance. We'll also come back later if this passes as part of the property tax setting. We will also be establishing the amount then. Um, the issue there is really the levy rate, which is also required in there. If that calculation is off, then that bumps up because you would then want to collect your regular levy and then whatever is left is the only thing that would contribute towards this, and that's the danger. So if we were to drop further, for example, instead of 20, if it were to be 21%, that number would go up again that much higher, roughly about, it's just under 1.8 pennies, I think is what it works out to roughly, um, for each percent drop. And so that would then eat into the the levy that we are looking for for the parks ballot measure. And so that's really the margin that we're playing with. Did I miss anything there, Kevin? I guess I'd invite bond counsel, uh, Deanna, if you want to um, add anything to what, what Sri just said in response to council member Falcone. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, no, Shree, um, you've had it. Uh, the The risk there is just that the, uh, the at the end of the day, the calculations will turn out. So the city bumps up against that max rate in the ballot measure. And under all circumstances, that's the max rate that can be levied. So that's the true risk is in setting that rate where it's at. So every percentage increases that. Um, so the greater that the assessed value drops, so we have assumed 20% drop. If it were to be 21%, for example, that number would be, instead of drop, you know, a change of mm -hmm. almost 24 cents, it'll be closer to 25 cents. So that would be the difference, and that means that that, if you're setting the maximum at $1.38 and change, then that portion of it, because we want to collect the regular levy first, that penny or penny and almost two pennies would go towards your regular levy first, and that'll short the park's ballot measure by that same amount. What does a penny equal? Now, if I wish I could remember right off the top of my head. Um, I'll have to get back to you on we that. We can figure that out, yeah. <laughs> we 
Any other questions before I get back to that? And maybe I'll have to come back to that later in this. Okay. I'm sorry, but in this case, with the animation, we'll be clicking through. Um, so now we got to talk about what the $10.8 million that we have assumed as part of that package would translate to. And in this case, we're showing you what the 10.8 million is with the assessed valuation from 2023 with no change in the assessed value, which would have been the 22.33 cents per thousand. With the 20% drop, the same 10.8 million would require you to uh, levy at a rate of 27.92 cents. And you can see that um, the difference over there. Uh, and once again, we're setting the maximum rate at uh, $1.38.77. Um, <clears throat> and um, in this case, once again, the reminder is there as a bullet as well that regardless of setting the levy rate as a max, the council is also opting to add language to the ordinance saying that they would not be levying anything more if, for example, the assessed value were to drop less than 20%. And this next table walks us through what would have been in 2023 tax year, what the regular levy was, which tries to the earlier table that I'd shown you, showing the 86 cents. And because of the 20% drop on the very first row, you see it goes from 0.86418 to $1.10, which is your 23 cents increase just to do that levy if we did not have the parks ballot measure. The parks ballot measure adds the 27.9 cents, which brings you to the $1.38177, which is the maximum rate we are setting in the ballot measure ordinance. And based on the current data that we have from the, from the assessor's office, we believe that this would be the max and the change would be the 51 cents there that we're showing. Questions on any of that? So here's a very different way of looking at it. We're going to be talking about the parks levy fund that we're going to be setting up to talk about uh, what happens to that with the projections that we are using and the planned shift of expenditures from the general fund. Um, for context on what that fund balance would look like, we thought it would be helpful to share what the general fund forecast looks like. We generally do just um, three biennials out um, as a practical matter. So this one shows you the projections from 2023 through 2028. And this is the forecast we shared with the council at the retreat in May. Um, we generally tend to look at it this way. And as the council is well aware, the projection almost always shows you that we have a gap and that we'll have to come back at each budget cycle to review and balance it. Um, as many of you are well aware, uh, this is primarily because of our very conservative budgeting principles and practices. Um, and for the purposes of this, uh, we're going to be showing the parks levy fund balance looking out for over 20 years. Um, but normally we just do a forecast for about six years. So the parks levy fund that we're proposing looking out for 20 years um, will have a positive balance as we're projecting it. Um, the dark or solid block um, bars are your total revenues. 
and the expenditures on the um, bars next to it, and the line indicates the fund balance. And based on the assumptions that we are using on both the capital expenditures on the pay-go process, the expenditures that we're moving over from the general fund into this new levy fund, and the projections on the levy itself, we believe that the park levy fund will be to the positive for the first 20 years. And are the revenues increased at the same level as the costs are estimated? Two different sets of assumptions for the growth. Um, the parks levy will then, after this one year lift, it'll just be part of the overall lift. So we'll only have the 1% increase going forward. Um, and then the cost expenses uh, have a varying set of um, inflation factors in there, since a lot of that is salaries and benefits. Um, we've also been working with our um, financial advisor on trying to project out what the debt service would look like and following council's directions last time about using the 30-year term. Um, we have decided that we will just use their best estimates. This is information that is based on um, as of June 21st, and they use the current rates that they could come up with for the city of Kirkland with a AAA rating, and also provided what it would be like for rates with uh, assuming 50 basis points higher. And again, to be most conservative for our purposes, for our projections, and the cash flow modeling, we have used the current rates plus the 50 basis points in our estimates for debt service. Questions on the financial section before? Back one slide, just to make sure there's no questions on that. You're studying hard. <laughs> okay, yeah. And I'll get back to you on the change on the, as well in a moment. Thank you. Okay, that was our most complicated section with the finances. Not easy stuff. Um, and this slide is actually just to uh, tell folks at home that might be watching or remind anyone else what exactly is in the ballot measure. So we have an aquatics and recreation center, which would be approximately 86,000 square feet and would be located at Houghton Park and Ride. You heard good news about that earlier from City Manager Triplett. It would be nine year-round restrooms, which would be accomplished by building three new ones and winterizing six current ones. Then we have uh, park safety and security with automated gates plus one park ranger and 2,400 seasonal ranger hours. Four sports courts, and that is likely to be three pickleball courts and one sand volleyball court. Expanded beach lifeguards at the lifeguarded beaches, uh, expanded season and hours, plus a water safety program. Uh, teen programs and operations of the Kirkland Teen Union Building. And finally, we have select acquisitions, easements, and segments of the Green Loop Trail. So those are the elements that are in the package. Um, however, there are other components of the package um, that are not really considered elements. Um, one is the NKCC site replacement, uh, repair or replacement assessment. Then we also have the two implementation positions. And finally in there is the current parks operations that would be shifted over into the levy fund. 
So onto the implementation positions. As Hillary mentioned earlier, the financial modeling of the elements has become increasingly more sophisticated and three-dimensional over the past couple weeks. We've developed solid costing of all of the elements, which includes positions necessary to operate those elements. We've also discussed briefly that the department would need some positions to implement the ballot measure and handle the growth of the department. By the budget, the department would increase 50%, and by FTE, the department would increase 38%. With the current, currently calculated package you saw earlier, and the numbers are on the screen, with the two implementation positions, the revenue that is kind of the target goal with the levy is $10,800,000 in the first year of the levy lid lift. With the third position, that would go up to $10,960,000. And before we move on to feedback on that, um, I'd like to just say a few words about the communications specialist position and the management analyst position. I know that folks are quite familiar with what park planning would be doing when we implement something like uh, 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 these types of capital projects. So first with the communication specialist, the primary focus, uh, and it was mentioned earlier, I, I hope, uh, if not, I'll mention it now. We actually have all three of these positions in the department as one-time funded, two of which um, were added with a ballot measure. So all three of them do currently exist and the funding runs out at the end of this year. So the communication specialist has a primary focus on the ballot measure, but this position has also handled scripts and press releases for park ceremonies and department initiatives, the monthly report, website and social media, and community response via email and Q alerts. And just to give an order of magnitude on Q alerts, in 2022, we had 1,025 Q alerts. Going forward, those duties would continue um, and the ballot measure exploratory process would be replaced with a ballot uh, project implementation engagement. So we would anticipate community engagement with all components of the ballot capital projects as well as our current CIP projects. Um, they do, they do uh, operate with capital or community engagement primary to going into design and an RFP. Uh, then there's also community information dissemination with the ballot projects, uh, CIP projects, and then there's multiple projects in the ballot that aren't capital that are operating, and so there would be information processes uh, to communicate with the community on that. Uh, there would be oversight of the water safety education information, signage, and print materials, new levy progress report and measures of success, uh, and moving back to the departmental level, proactive outreach and engagement related to various department initiatives and issues. And just to give an example of that, Snyder's Corner would be an example of that. And then the management analyst position um, is anticipated to provide operational leadership for the ballot implementation team, which we expect would last about three years. Uh, it'll involve project tracking and reporting, benchmarking on organizational structures needed to make decisions on department reorganization, research and assistance to create 24 new job descriptions, new financial structure and budgets, uh, development of new and updated department policies and procedures for new and existing operations, safety and employee functions, and finally, uh, creation of effective and efficient employee onboarding materials 
to handle what will now be closer to 300 contingent employees per year, which is up 50% from 200 right now. So that's just a, a quick overview of those positions. And on that note, we're asking for any general feedback that council might have, but also specifically, does the council want to include the communications program specialist or correspondingly, you might actually have some discussion on the two positions that are already included. Um, so ultimately, we are looking to have direction on what we should proceed with for the July 18th final calculations. And I can go back to this one so that you can see those total amounts as well as the rates. Council? Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I'll kick us off. As we're looking at putting together this package, I'm kind of trying to balance two things. One, we want to deliver what we're promising. Uh, but two, we have been working really hard over the last couple of months to contain costs, especially given the information that Shri had presented and that, um, uh, that with uh, the property tax rates that, that we're talking about. I look at the first two positions around planning and the analyst as key to delivering what we, we promised. Uh, the communication position seems like an add for the ballot measure. Len, you've mentioned that this is already funded in our current budget. I think we have other budget processes that we can use to see how we maintain that function. Um, but I would be um, not in favor of adding this to the ballot measure at this late date. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Pascal. So I certainly understand that as we invest in our parks that we, you know, one of the biggest investments we can make, not just in capital, but we need the operations to, to serve the, our capital investments. So completely understand about that. I think um, the question I have, this is a question back to, to you all, um, is I'd like to get a better understanding of the big picture with FTEs because what I read uh, and what I heard you say and then what I read in some of the material is that we had already been planning for FTEs to be added as part of the, I guess, the, the package that we saw last meeting um, to support the, the new facility and other things. What I'd like to see is just, at what, and maybe I just have missed it, but just where are FTEs today? What was what was being added through the original package? And then we have these, these additional FTEs on mm -hmm. top of that. Just trying to understand, kind of just looking at a kind of big picture. Um, that would just help clarify it for me in terms of how this how this kind of all fits together, you know, because it's a puzzle piece of, of trying <coughs> to make sure that we have the resources that we can support these investments over time. And of course, I had the answer to that in writing, which is currently on my computer that I've now closed. So I can get that for you. Uh, I believe it's 24 positions. So there's uh, many positions, obviously, with the recreation center, and those are specifically operational positions as well as a management position at the recreation center. Then there's a grounds position, park ranger, um, there's a communications position, there's a supervisor position for KTUB, um, there's these two or three that we're talking about, and I'm missing one. 
I'll look okay. that up for you and get it. Yeah, it's in just information. That'd be great. You could come back. Yeah, yeah it's not. I, I wasn't expecting it right now, but I think this is this is an important conversation. I want to be able to talk intelligently about the FTEs that were that were proposing to be added to support these these investments. And you know, right now, I, I guess I'm probably very similar to the deputy mayor in terms of where I'm landing. Thank you. Thank you, Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor, and thank you, Lynn and Shri. The reason we're quiet is it's a lot to process. So, um, so to the question at hand, this is going to be the largest capital project we build in the city of Kirkland, and I we have historically said we want to build more parks facilities faster, sooner. I support the two, the management analyst position and the plan, project planning position, because I believe the project planning position will help us bring this in on time, on budget. Hopefully, save us some money, save us some time. The management analyst position is also important, and one of the things I was thinking about when you were talking is, you know, we frequently talk about, could we get corporate sponsorships for this, bring corporate money into this project? I can see that being a task for the management analyst position. Um, I've said all along, though, that I didn't want this ballot measure to be a place where we start hanging things that um, we weren't funding elsewhere. I really feel like we need to focus on what we're building and what we're including in the ballot measure. The communications position, important, and your job description was very clear, but it really covers all of the Parks and Community Services Department. So I think that we need to look to fund that out of our normal budget process because it will be an ongoing position. So like Deputy Mayor and possibly Councilmember Pascal, I support the two positions, but I'd like to do the communications position through our normal uh, budget cycle. I'm just gonna say I agree with, with the conclusions that my peers have come up with. I think that would be a more rational approach to this. Not just because we, you know, not just because we need to be concerned about how many FTEs we are increasing for the project, but because I believe that there are some economies of scale. And I've managed very, very large departments in the past where we've continued to add work and I recognize that you, you don't always have, you don't automatically add the body. Um, and so what we tended to do, or what I tended to do in, in, in my relationship with employees and with additional work was to make those assumptions later and then to get them incorporated into the general budget. So I agree. Any discussion? Okay, so I am hearing that we should proceed with the currently calculated package with the two positions as our assumptions for July 18th. That's what I heard. If I could just add a friendly amendment to that, but I'm also hearing council is definitely open to us returning with a conversation about the communication specialist position and sort of the normal budget process is like the um, okay. mid-buy and, and next year's budget. Okay. Mm -hmm. so we do think that'll be an important conversation then as well. Okay, on that note, I'm gonna hand it over to Hillary. There you go. Welcome back, Hillary.
Okay, so in front of you on the screen, and you, like you saw in your memo, we have the draft ballot measure language. And we've um, shared a draft version of this a couple times, and this has taken a couple iterations. And so now we're really hoping tonight for any feedback or edits you have so that we can incorporate those into the language and bring back a final on the 18th. And the draft language on the screen meets all the requirements in the ballot title of ballot title language and is 75 words starting after this proposition funds. Um, we wrote this, of course, in consultation with our bond counsel, Deanna Gregory, who's on the phone if we have any questions that she um, could answer specifically. And the language includes the required maximum total city levy rate, which you'll see as the first red number, which is um, 1.3818 cents per, or dollars per thousand of assessed value. And it also includes the requirement, the required statement about the permanence of a single year levy lid lift, um, which is the sentence starting with the 2024 levy amount will be the basis for to calculate subsequent levies. And it require, in, includes the exemptions for qualifying seniors, disabled veterans, and others who can be exempted under RCW 8436. And that has to be written into the language if you want to include that exemption. Um, and so the red text there, um, the, which is the two dollar amount numbers on the screen, um, shows the maximum rate and the approximate total levy dollar amount for 2024. And so those are based currently on the $10.8 million amount using that assumption of a potential 20% drop in assessed value. And in a moment, we'll talk about the ordinance itself, which um, in, conveys council's intent to not levy more than necessary if the amount of if the assessed value drop is lower than projected. Um, so I, we have this here, and I'm curious if there's any changes you would like to see. I also do have a Word document version if we need to open that up and do that together. But we, um, so that is what we have. And like I mentioned, Deanna's on the phone if we have any questions related to kind of the um, specifics of what needs to be included or if there's questions that staff would like to send to Deanna. Councilman Nixon. Um, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, so this afternoon, we the council received the Q alert. And one of the interesting points in that one was that there are at least some people in the community who have looked at our discussions so far and are getting from this language that their taxes are going to go up by $1.38 per thousand. And so, and I think partly that's because our practice in the past has been to talk about what the additional rate would be and not what the total rate would be. And so I just want, I don't really have a question, but an observation that when we do our informational website, when we do our informational mailing, when we do our voter guide statement, we're going to have to make this very clear to people that we're not talking about a $1.38 tax increase. We're talking about, you know, 28 cents or whatever it's actually going to be. That's it. Yeah, thank you. And then for anyone who might be listening, um, the other thing that will accompany this is the explanatory statement in the ballot. Um, in the voters' pamphlet, which will definitely have more words to be sharing, things like that. Thank you. And I think just to, to follow up on that, so basically the, the choice we sort of had is whether you include the 10.8 million or you include the 23 cent additional increment. And our discussions of staff, I think as the council, was that it was more transparent to member of the public to know the millions you're actually buying versus the levy rate, but that was kind of why we, you can sort of do one or the other in 75 words, but you can't do both very easily. Right. Curtis. Um, I, I'm comfortable with this language, and I just want to acknowledge that we switched um, led, levy lid lift for 
expanded aquatic center earlier, it said enhanced, and I really feel like expanded captures what we're trying to do here, which is build more programming and more facilities, so good job. Thank you for that. Uh, Council Member Pascal. Yeah, to build off of those comments, uh, just, I guess it's a question for that, that first sentence, not the title, um, but the first sentence, you know, does say funding for expanded aquatics. And do we want to be more, I mean, was there, was there a discussion about being more clear with that we're building a new facility? We're, you know, it's not just we're expanding. We are building a significant uh, facility. I don't get that when I read this. Yeah. So that, I'll take my first shot. I'm sure Deanna and Hillary and others will jump into. So because of the way that we're doing this, um, you might recall we discussed the two camps of funding, right? The Aquatic Center itself, there's a little bit of money from this levy contributed to the Aquatic and Recreation Center, so there's a little bit of PAYGO capital in it. But the vast majority of it, 90% of it, is actually going to be funded through um, general fund levy debt. So this ballot measure actually does not fund that, and in our conversations with Deanna and Kevin, so you can't say that. Okay. So that's the main reason it's not there. But yes, yeah, so we have to be clear in the explanatory statement that it will be built, and we'll talk about this in the ordinance. The ordinance commits the council to using freed up money to issue debt to build an aquatic center, but the ballot language doesn't authorize money to issue the debt. It authorizes money to pay for these programs. So that's why it's not in there like that. Okay, so so when someone's reading this in their, they get their voter guide and they're deciding whether or not to say yes or no, they could then look at the explanatory statement that says this will build a new facility? That we haven't written yet. We're gonna, we but, have to but, work on I that. Mean, but that's where we could capture that, that, that type of language to be very clear that it's, it's a pretty significant investment in so, yeah. Larry, do you want to add yeah, I think I think Deanna? that was a great explanation. Yes, I think that we're we're working with Deanna as well to, on on just all of the messaging and how we can write these things in alignment with what what the ordinance says. And then the other addition is um, we're working on a one pager, which will really actually be about a four pager, similar to the previous parks levy, that will have a lot more details information for everyone in addition. And of course, we know that not everyone's going to necessarily read all of those pieces of information, so we'll do our best to get all that in ahead of time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Part of the explanation that uh, Councilmember Pascal talked about is said we're um, shifting some of existing parks operations to be funded by this levy. Um, parks and community services cover a lot of things we're mentioning here in parks maintenance and um, recreation operations and other things, but it also has human services. Do we have the flexibility, given what we're seeing here, to fund anything from human services um, out of this parks levy? I'll, I'll start by saying that the answer is no, um, but uh, Bond Council, Deanna Gregory, you may want to expand on that. Uh, not as written. Not as written. It could, because this can apply to any lawful purpose, but at this point, it's focused on parks and not on human services. Deanna, do you want to add to that? No, that's um, you guys are answering all the questions tonight perfectly from my perspective. <laughs> um, the uh, it's it's very focused, as you can see, on um, parks and operations. And um, even though it may all be in the same department, 
um, the ballot language and the ordinance really focuses on those park operations and all the bells and whistles that go with that. So if it, but as Kevin said, um, from a levy lid lift legal perspective, um, the levy lid lift can be used for any lawful purpose. It's the language should just, I would recommend expanding the language if that's the route you want to take. Okay. Then um, second question is that just thinking about what might happen during an economic downturn and council wanting to change priorities. How much of the department's operations is going to be fund, funded by this levy and therefore restricted compared to money that will that, that we have more flexibility with in the general fund? Yeah, thanks for that question. So currently, in the current modeling, um, we have moving over by I believe it's 2026 approximately 56 percent of the department's current operations into the levy fund. So that would leave 44 percent would remain in the general fund. And so, if in the you know there's many ways, of course, the council would plan during an economic downturn, but in, in the case there would need to be some, some could be shifted from the general fund of that remaining 44% over to the levy fund with different decisions that would be made during that budgeting time. Okay, thank you. Ms. Mayor Black. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I wanted to quickly call my um, colleagues' attention to a word that um, staff entered or added, which was green loop trail networks. And that kind of comes from a comment that I made um, to the city manager about, um, I would use the term green loop trail connections. Um, what we see here is green loop trail networks. Um, I thought a lot about whether those two words mean anything different in this context and whether it's meaningful. And after talking to the city manager about this earlier today, I think it's really a question of what's most transparent about what we have planned. And I was curious to hear from my colleagues uh, since that's something we added and it kind of comes from me, but my idea was connections if there's a strong feeling one way or the other. It just said Green Loop Trail, period. Mm -hmm. So, because what we're really doing is sort of Green Loop Trail connections or or increasing the, the network. I just... I'll just say Councilman Rocco's kind. I'm the one who actually put the word networks in because I remembered him saying something and I my mind went networks, not connections. So that was that was my word, not his. I've always appreciated that our, <laughs> our the, the connectivity of our parks, a lot of our parks in Kirkland, especially along the waterfront and with the cross current corridor. And I think that's what folks um, in Kirkland are looking for from the Green Loop Trail is sort of a, a, a you know, more uh, connecting some of those existing open spaces with, with trail, but it's connecting with a trail network. So I just wondered what folks thought. Mr. Nixon. Yeah, well, I, I think the closest word to what we're actually doing is segments, but connections certainly sounds like it's actually accomplishing something more than just buying segments. So I'm fine with that. If you wanted to change it to connections. Uh, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Good question, Councilmember Black. Um, I'm fine, I think, um, with either. Um, connections makes me think that it's connections to the Green Loop and not helping to build the Green Loop. Like when we talk about CKC connections, we talk about connections to it for people to access it, and we don't yet have the Green Loop completed or even planned. And so maybe I prefer networks, now that I'm saying that out loud, but connections because of that. And I agree that I think networks is better than segments. I think it is more accurate. Deputy Mayor Councilmember Falcone stole my point, and I will <laughs> say 
because that's where my mind went as well. Uh, I will say trail networks is something that is used regionally, uh, each trail and elsewhere, so it is a more known uh, term. Thank you. I agree. I actually like networks um, just in terms of, I mean, just the assumption that connect, connections does make it sound like it's already done, even though I walked on it many times. But, so I think we'll go with networks. That's what it sounds like. Sounds like we're going with networks, and that's fine with me. Thanks. Any, any other feedback or changes you would like to see in the title? Hillary, I think we have wordsmithed it <laughs> great, adequately. Okay, so then I just wanted to talk a little bit about the draft ordinance. And um, the next three slides will contain information about what the ordinance has. Um, hopefully you had a moment to re review the ordinance in your packets. Um, and I'm gonna just kind of go over what it has and then we will have a couple specific texts of um, highlights of specific texts related to the Aquatics and Recreation Center and then council's commitment to not overcollect. Um, so the ordinance begins in the whereas sections with history that includes pro references of the pros plans um, from, the, from 2001 all the way to 2022. Um, it talks about council decisions related to prioritizing parks and recreation funding and PFEC authorization. It talks about the elements that council is prioritizing and then talks about kind of the end of the whereas clauses, as you saw, talk about council's decision to specifically put a levy lid lift on the ballot to fund elements, and it has the rate and an acknowledgement of the AV fluctuations and the intention to not um, over collect and to only collect the amount necessary to fund the base city rate and then the new projects. And Deanna's gonna talk about that specific text in a moment. Um, and then after that, so then there's a kind of now therefore the city does, council does ordain sections um, and the first area of that is the findings and description of parks and recreation projects. Um, it starts out by having um, some text and then it has a list of the levy funded projects and operations. And the text that I have in that first block there um, is parts of lines 161 through 166 of the draft ordinance. And this is really the information that relates to the Aquatics and Recreation Center construction. And so what that in part says is to provide long-term financing for the acquisition, design, construction, and equipping of the pr proposed Aquatics and Recreation Center, the city intends to issue limited tax general obligation bonds within its allowable non-voted debt capacity and to use funds in the city's general fund and other legally available revenue to pay debt service on such bonds. And so that's kind of, as um, City Manager Triplett mentioned, the levy itself is not paying the debt service on those bonds, but the ordinance is written in a way that commits, the city council is committing itself to issuing those bonds through the general fund to build the facility. Um, the rest of the slide is just kind of the basic parts of an ordinance that need to be included um, that call the election and talk about the voters' pamphlets and um, share effective dates. And now I'm gonna turn it over to Deanna to talk about this section, which is, a, um, this is sec parts of the section that's lines two, um, 222 through 232, which is talking about committing to not over collect. And so Deanna, I'll let you kind of talk a little bit about this wording. Oh, perfect, thank you. Um, so the language that's up on the screen um, really is intended to capture the 
the situation that you've, of course, been addressing um, for a number of weeks now, which is how do you convey to the voters that there are these fluctuations in assessed valuation, we don't exactly know what's going to happen, um, um, but really key into that important point, which is that dollar amount and that the city does not intend to, even if it can, over levy. And so there's a couple of different places in the ordinance, including the lines that are noted up on the on the screen, um, that um, in the event that the, uh, the decrease in assessed valuation is not as um, um, deep uh, of, a, of a dip as um, kind of the, as anticipated, and uh, then what the amount is that the city will collect in 2024 will be closer to that or tied to that um, 10.8 million number and um, will be, of course, used for the park and recreation projects. And that's, of course, it's a defined term um, in the ordinance itself and lists all those, includes all those various projects. And um, the city will only collect what it needs to collect um, in all cases, and then um, to offset the fluctuations in assessed valuation, plus, of course, the 1% for its regular property tax levy. So that's captured in the last um, part of the sentence there. So this is really your commitment to voters um, that uh, of what the uh, overall intent is. As the been mentioned a few times, there's only 75 words that you can put into the ballot measure. And so unfortunately, all of this can't be captured, but the ballot measure uh, does refer to the ordinance, incorporates the ordinance, and um, again, um, ties that $1.8 million number um, to really key into the intent of the council. I'd be happy to answer any questions on this language or the language where it um, arrives in the uh, um, in the ordinance itself, whether it's in the recitals or or in the other places of the document. Any questions, Council? Deanna, I think you did this once before pretty well, so. <laughs> Great. Uh, Dick and Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, Deanna, one thought that uh, yeah. came up given the discussion from Council Member Nixon and some um, feedback that we had gotten. Is it possible within the ordinance itself to have information to indicate that the increase is 29 cents? Because uh, hmm. the language in there right now still talks about exclusively the total. There's no legal reason to, pro, um, to prevent the city from doing so. Um, it could certainly be added in the, um, what we would call the, the, the recitals or the operative language, um, just to give a ballpark. I think it would be for, um, just to kind of give more of an illustration of what the um, incremental increase is expected to be if, uh, if the numbers play out the way they play out. Um, but we could, it could certainly be added. There's no reason why it couldn't. I think to uh, the concern earlier, of course, was noting was that the, um, that because the wording limit in the ballot measure itself is, you know, capped at 75 words, it's, it's a challenge to put in everything that you'd like to put yeah. in, plus a thorough description of all the projects. <laughs> but um, your ordinance itself is, of course, not limited to that. The um, explanatory statement can also add that or include that type of um, descriptive information for um, for your voters. I think it would be helpful to communicate our intent on this 
both in the explanatory statement but also in the authorizing ordinance that, that um, we, ahead, we expect this intention at this bunch. Got it. Thank you. So I'm saying council say yes. Include that in the final version that we bring back on the 18th. Great. We will do that. Um, my other question is just, is there anything else you would like to see um, in the ordinance about um, adjusted or anything? Oh, I'm sorry. Councilmember Curtis. Um, I was just going to say as I'm scanning through this that we're line 84, we have green loop trail segment. So we should update the ordinance to say networks yeah. when we go through it. Thank you. Great catch, thank you. Uh, Councilmember Pascal. Yeah, on the on the whereas clauses, one of the things I was thinking about, I didn't I didn't read it in there, but didn't we we passed the bond levy for parks? I think in two thousand two that expired in twenty twenty two, I believe, right? That's correct. Yep. Um, I think that would be important to mention in that whereas saying saying that we we invested through a, a bond levy, you know, twenty years ago it just ended. We're looking to, you know essentially expand and renew uh, a levy, you know, for, for these things. That that was a powerful statement when um, the school district was going out for a renewal, was showing one was ending, we were coming up with a with a new one. So I would encourage us to, to think about adding some language in the whereas. I'm seeing head nods. Great. Let's do that thing. Okay. That it? That's all you have on the ordinance, yes. I, I, oh, thank you. Can you wait just a minute and we are going to adjourn for an executive session? So. Yeah, so I just, um, Councilmember Curtis. I, thank you, Madam Mayor. I just have one more question that has nothing to do with ordinance. On attachment A, is that going to be something that we're going to use in any sort of communication vehicle and that is the timeline the funding timeline yeah that's a that's a great question um, we don't have specific plans for it yet so if you would like us to be using something similar um, we definitely can make a little bit more of a public facing better digestible version my feedback on it is mm -hmm. we have heard loudly from the pickleball community how they want more pickleball courts and we have the pickleball courts out to 2026, which will make them very sad. So my suggestion is that we, obviously we have to collect the funds in 24. My suggestion would be to move the pickleball courts to 25. Uh, excellent observation. <laughs> <laughs> um, the reason we had it in 2026 is that we thought actually the best location for three pickleball courts would be at the Houghton Park and Ride site in conjunction with the recreation center designed kind of as part of uh, integration to make it almost a little park there as well. Um, and also there are very few houses right next to where <laughs> those pickleball course would be. Um, having said that, obviously council has say in uh, which ones you'd like to see implemented first. So. That's a very good answer. And we all saw the article over last week about the noise of taking the pickleball mm -hmm. court. So <coughs> thank you. Yeah. Okay, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Just looping back to my question earlier, I know you were still looking for that information to the um, mayor's follow-up question on what one percentage, an additional percentage point drop may be. 
But I'm still kind of noodling that over and wondering if we want to discuss what, like we already have in there in our ordinance that we're not going to exceed the 10.8 million and collected in 2024. Do we feel we're being conservative enough? I'm still concerned because Sammamish's was higher than that, that what could an additional one or two percentage points do? Um, and would that really matter to voters if the, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if that like dollar or whatever was two cents more, would that really make a difference in the mind of voters, especially knowing that they have the guarantee that we're not going to over collect? Um, I just, it's just not quite sitting right with me yet, that risk. Um, and so perhaps knowing what that would mean in dollars and what that would mean as far as impact on what we actually want to accomplish with this ballot measure may or may not put my mind at ease. It may or it may want me to just kind of nudge that a little bit more. Um, again, I just want to make sure that we have the funds that we need. And um, if, it's, if we don't feel like it's going to make a difference in the mind of the voter, then what would be the argument for not basing it off of the Sammamish numbers? I mean, I don't know the 18% in Kirkland. I don't remember how wide of a of an area that was that we have those data from to be confident that that's going to be, you know, 20% citywide. Well, what we could do pretty straightforwardly is show you what that number would be at each level, 20, 21, 22, 23%. And then the council could just make an amendment to switch the number with the different number if you wanted to, right? So $1.40 versus $1.38 as an example. And we could try to see if there's a we can glean anything else, like for example, did they do something in Bothell that's close to Finn Hill, and could we get a sense of that? So, um, I think we could easily have those for you as an amendment that you could choose to look at on the 18th. We have a couple numbers if you would like me to share now. I was certain she was going to answer the question. Um, so, a 1% change, so instead of 20% drop, if it was 21%, um, that would shift our numbers from. I think what we showed, I think I'm going to go back to that slide if possible. So, um, instead of it showing up as a dollar thirty-eight, it will be essentially a dollar thirty-nine, almost a dollar forty. So what would that mean as far as what we could, thank you for that, as far as what we portion we would be collecting for the purposes that we have outlined in this ballot measure. So we'd have to, if we only had up to a $1.38.177, um, then as you mentioned earlier, some of that would need to go into the regular levy, right, lift and not for the parks ballot measure. So what instead of $10.8 million, what would that mean we hmm. would collect in 2024 dollars? I think that's what I'm trying to get right. at is like what, what could we bring in and what impact would that have long-term given that that's gonna be the base that we're increasing 1% every year? Like would it cut yeah. like the sports courts? Like I'm just trying right, to get right. a sense of what mm. that would. I think we can, we can certainly do that for the memo and show a table that says, if we kept everything flat and it went down, what, what financial impact would that be on the 10.8 million? And then we could do it the other way and say, if you wanted to hedge your bet, what, how many pennies would you wanna add? Um, and then, like I said, you could just make an amendment to say this is what we'd like to do. Um, I think, but I think we want to make sure you have all that to compare versus trying to just highlight it. Here. Yeah, that would be helpful. So you have time to process, and yeah. I think that would be helpful for people to see yeah. and understand yeah. why we're doing what we're doing too. Okay. Councilmember Nixon. Um, thanks. I just wanted to pile on uh, with Councilmember Curtis for just a second. Um, I think that the information in Appendix A is very useful for the primary reason that 
It's one of the few places, if not the only place, where we explain why the operating cost of the aquatic center starts before the aquatic center opens. And I think letting people know that we have to hire people leading up to that um, is important so that they understand why we're asking for that money. Um, the other thing I want to mention is um, now that we have this letter of intent signed on the Houghton Park and Ride, how soon could we open temporary uh, pickleball courts <laughs> there? Because that could go a long way to helping people um, who are asking for that. Um, I, I don't actually know if there's a segment of that lot that's flat enough or where the pavement condition is good enough to actually do that. But I would be very interested in getting information back on that. Yeah, we could try to have that. I, I'll tell you, you're feeling Beth Goldberg's pain. So <laughs> we, we have been asking about an interim use agreement as well as the letter of intent and the purchase and sale agreement. And so again, Robin Mayhew with the regional office has been fantastic. And this might be a place where, again, we might ask for help going a little bit more for more clarity. What she has told us is that normally a use agreement for something like that, for the city to be allowed to put pickleball courts on, could be six to eight months out of getting out of WashDOT in their normal process, right? And so we have focused on getting the letter of intent first, but we have said several times we'd like to actually establish interim use. And the carrot would be also interim maintenance. Like, we'll take this from you and we'll we'll clip the blackberries and we'll clean it up and all that. If you'll let us have it, we then can start programming it. But um, Unfortunately, at the moment, that process, they have a process, and that process takes a long time to get through WashDOT, so we may need some help in, in expedite that a little bit, but our primary focus was let's get it first, and then, um, but we do want interim use, and we are going to start to get complaints about what it looks like, and right now, we have no ability as the city to do anything. We need WashDOT to give us permission, so I think a use agreement with WashDOT makes sense as the next step, now that we have the letter of intent. Thank you. Yeah. Curtis. Um, I'm just thinking that during that six months, we could start figuring out how we would use it because I love the idea of pickleball courts and there are lights there. And I think I threw out a skate park at one right. point too. So, you know, what could we do and what would it cost? And to WashDOT's credit, they did allow us to put the nice fencing in. So they had us put up the temporary fencing in and the final fencing. And so they, they really are trying, but they, they have their own, you know, processes they have to answer to as well. Councilmember Caspel. Yeah, going back to this uh, conversation about assessed value, or drop in assessed value, uh, just thinking about it more, you know, that is going to be a really important conversation with the community to explain that. And the more information we have to explain that, the better. And so I guess I go back to how did we arrive at the 20%? Where did that come from? What's the confidence interval in that? I mean, if it's a pretty it's a pretty conservative assumption for all these reasons, then that's, that's, that's great to, to highlight. Um, how are we different than Sammamish? Um, you know, do, do we have much greater assessed value? Do we have much greater uh, construction activity occurring that's you know, offsetting some of that? So I think some of those, that information would be really helpful too, to bring back as, as long with what uh, Councilmember Falcone asked for. So, thank you. Great. So um, this is the final slide and just kind of outlining the timeline and next steps. Um, so the, I wanted to say, at our, like you saw in the memo, at the last council meeting you authorized the pro-con committee recruitment and um, staff decided because of the holiday and just like timing with getting things out 
it made the most sense to extend the recruitment due date to July 12th, so that's next week. And um, if anyone's interested who's listening to writing a pro or con statement, you can um, email our city clerk, Kathy, and there's more information on the website as well. Um, and so on the 18th, you have your meeting, and that's the last regularly scheduled council meeting to approve the ballot measure ordinance for the election in November 2023. And then we'll also have um, information about confirming the pro-con committee appointments. And um, then after that, August 1st is the date by which we as staff need to file the ordinance and the pro-con committee appointments with the King County elections. The explanatory statement will be due to King County elections on August 4th. The pro-con committee um, statements are submitted directly by those committees to the King County elections and those are due on the 8th and then they have an opportunity to do an optional rebuttal statement by receiving the other one and writing a re response to that. And then of course election day is November 7th. Um, so that's just the kind of timeline that we're looking at. And so we're going to take um, your all your requests tonight and come back with some more answers in the memo um, with the, the different requests and then update the ordinance with a couple of those specific items that you asked for as well. Um, thank you, Hillary. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, Sri. Um, the baby's about to be born. <laughs> so we'll see you next two weeks. Thank you. Thank you very much. With that, we're going to adjourn for a brief executive. Do you want to change the agenda and do the executive session now? I do. do I need a motion to do, do that? Motion. Second. Moved by Councilmember Curtis, seconded by Councilmember Falcone. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? We are adjourned until 7.30. Claire, thank you for being here. Claire's dad, if you would like to point out the typo. We are back in session following a study session uh, for a discussion on a potential parks ballot measure draft ordinance. Um, before I start the meeting again, I would like to make a, a statement. And this statement is with regard to our pride crosswalk and the vandalism we have been experiencing. Since the council last met on June the 20th, the pride crosswalk in Marina Park has been vandalized twice. It is one thing to disagree with decisions made by the city, and we always welcome constructive dialogue and civil discourse from those who hold opposing views. But it is quite another to willfully violate the law anonymously and under the cover of darkness. These intentional acts of destructions are hate crimes, and the city does not tolerate, tolerate hate in any form. The city's investigating both cases, and we are working to address the damage done to the crosswalk. We're gonna hear more about this topic later on under city manager report se section of our agenda. 
The colors of the pride flag represent life and healing. The crosswalk is intended to embody the spirit of belonging that Kirkland strives to achieve for everyone. We ask every member of our community to join us in keeping Kirkland a safe, welcoming place for all people. Thank you. This takes us to item four, honors and proclamations. We have the proclamation <coughs> tonight, the Disability Pride Month proclamation, and Council Member Falcone is going to help me with this up front, City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. As you're coming down, um, we'll be naming July as Disability Month in Kirkland, and for those of you uh, watching or here, uh, there are many resources in the memo that can get people to get more information. We're also very excited and proud today that having here to receive our proclamation is Ruth Segua, who is a lead in our recreation, Parks and Recreation Department. So welcome, Ruth. Thank you, City Manager. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I'll be reading our proclamation proclaiming the month of July as Disability Pride Month in Kirkland, Washington. And I just want to say on a personal note, as someone who lives with multiple invisible disabilities, this is um, particularly special to me. So um, thank you. Madam Mayor, for issuing this. Whereas Disability Pride Month is celebrated every July, marking the anniversary of the Americans with Disability Act, signed into law in 1990, landmark legislation that broke down barriers to inclusion for people with disabilities and protects them from discrimination. And whereas the ADA provides guidance for people with disabilities by providing resources about their rights, laws, and regulations, and whereas people with disabilities have been marginalized and misunderstood for generations, and they should be acknowledged, valued, and respected, and whereas sex, race, gender identity, sexual orientation, and other factors contribute to barriers to acceptance and diagnosis, and whereas although society often thinks of people with disabilities as a single population, they're a diverse group of people with a wide range of needs. And whereas the city is committed to making Kirkland a safe, inclusive, and welcoming place where people of all abilities belong. And whereas Disability Pride Month is an opportunity to honor the history, achievements, experiences, and struggles of people with disabilities, including highly successful people such as Stephen Hawking, Frida Kahlo, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Stevie Wonder, Helen Keller, Ralph Braun, John Hockenberry, and many others. And whereas, talking with your family about acceptance and inclusion of people with disabilities is important, and an ongoing conversation will help foster inclusion for the next generation. And whereas, there are many ways to celebrate Disability Pride Month, including by amplifying the voices and experiences of people with disabilities, uplifting them to share their story, or attending a Disability Pride event. And whereas, events and educational resources in our community help celebrate Disability Pride Month, including books recommended by the King County Library System, resources recommended by the Seattle Theater Group, such as books, films, organizations, and support groups for people with disabilities, and the Disability Pride Month Artistic Justice Showcase at Town Hall Seattle, which showcases black, brown, and indigenous performers and artists with disabilities through storytelling, performance, and other art forms. 
exploring and reflecting on the intersection of racial justice and disability justice, information about which can be found on the websites of these organizations. Now, therefore, Mayor Penny Sweet, on behalf of the City Council, does hereby proclaim July as Disability Pride Month in Kirkland and encourages all community members to promote acceptance and appreciation of disabled people as family members, friends, classmates, coworkers, and neighbors, making valuable contributions to our community. Thank you so much, everyone, and thank you so much, Mayor. Okay, thank you. Glad to have you on board. Thank you. <laughs> oh, of course, I always forget. Let me turn you around just a bit. Okay, that takes us to item number five on our agenda, communications. This is the time in our meeting when we hear from the public on matters which are not quasi-judicial or scheduled for a public hearing, of which there are none tonight. Please limit your remarks to three minutes and the council will hear, receive up to three comments on each side of, of each issue. If you are present either in person or virtually and would like to address the council during this item's audience period, Please sign up using the online public comment instruction link or in person using the posted QR code. For those participating by phone, please dial star 9 to be recognized to speak. Community members will be called on in the order in which they signed up. Items from the audience is an important part of our business meeting and we ask that everyone be treated with kindness and respect. We ask that you please not clap or applaud after a speaker or express your disagreement with a speaker. We want everyone in Kirkland to feel welcome expressing their viewpoints regardless of content. Because they can be disruptive, um, signs and placards are not allowed in, in council chambers during our meetings regardless of their content. And with that, Mr. Clerk, we've got some folks signed up. We have eight people signed up. They're all on site in the council chamber. The first three are Ethan Karlinski, John Hansen, and Catherine Hatlig. Hello, City Council members. I'm Ethan Karlinski. I currently live in the Juanita Beach area, and I grew up in Kenmore. I'm here to voice my support for the closure of Park Lane to cars in support of opening it for pedestrians. I've recently uh, been learning a lot about walkability and urbanism and that sort of thing. And uh, I've, growing up in Kenmore, I've seen it grow from a place where there really wasn't much to do other than live there and then drive to other places. But now it's got the hangar, it's got uh, Wednesday farmer's markets, and it, the bridge party was awesome. And all of these things, seeing them uh, growing up in Kenmore has really got me excited about what Park Lane could become. Uh, 
and having it be a place where you can ping pong between businesses without having to worry about waiting for someone to let you cross the street, maybe having a conversation with somebody without having to pause every time a loud car drives by. And I really don't think that the elimination of 17 parking spaces will be much of an issue for people. People walk much further distances all the time. Alderwood Mall is twice as long as Park Lane. And uh, you go to U Village, it's similarly sized, but the middle part of it is all uh, car free and it's still a vibrant, lovely place to be. So yeah, I would support the closure of Park Lane to cars. Thank That's you it. very much. Next speaker is John Hansen, followed by Catherine and Annika. Welcome, Mr. Hansen. Hello. Um, uh, thank you for allowing me to ask my three questions. Um, uh, again, my name is John Hansen. Um, uh, for 427 days, we've had an application in with the City of Kirkland for a sewer installation project at the junction of Northeast 73rd and 132nd Avenue. So my three questions are, can we get a project number? Can we get a description of the process that we're in? And can we get some timelines associated with that process? The only reason I'm here is I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what to do. Like I said, I have no project number, I have no process, and I have no timelines. The background of this is, the reason why it's difficult, is the property concerned is in Redmond, and the sewer solution is in 132nd, which belongs to Kirkland, which is why there's an interlocal agreement in order to sort this out. To go into ancient history, um, a man named John Buckwalter, Buckwalter, I don't know if he's still with the city, he approved exactly this sewer solution um, 800 days ago. It was ready for pickup. The previous owner of the project never picked it up, so we have reapplied. Um, and then a man named Josh Pansky, I talked to him a few times, um, and he talked about wheeling fees and things like that. And then latest was uh, Tuan Fan, um, who sent us potholing um, to see about the Kirkland sewer in order to come back to the sewer solution that we had. Um, so this sewer solution, like I said, was already approved. It wasn't picked up. What we were asking for was reapproval of exactly the same solution, 427 days. And all I'm looking for is a project number, some description of the process that we're in, and uh, some timelines associated with that. Um, to bring you more recently, um, someone named Julie Underwood um, wrote to me to tell me she's not gonna give me a project number or a description of the process that we're in or timelines. So like I said, I didn't want to disturb you with this. I'm at my wits end. I didn't know what else to do. Thank you for listening to my questions. Can I add one more thing to that? Please? My name is Dawn Hansen, but at my, my overarching comment to all uh, or to what John has added is uh, everyone wants housing and this is about providing more housing. Everyone wants it to be affordable. The one number one thing about housing being uh, unaffordable is exactly this. Cities make it so hard to get through. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars added to every project just trying to get through permitting. It doesn't need to be this hard. And we can make housing more affordable. So I leave it with you. Thank you. Thank you both for your comments. 
The next speaker is Catherine Hatlerud, followed by Annika Shinoda, Jan Young, and Susan Vossler. Um, hello, City Council members. My name is Catherine, and my pronouns are she, they. Um, I'm here tonight as a member of the community, as a, an educator, and as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, um, because I believe that the, sidewalk, uh, the pride sidewalk needs to be repaired because of what it represents, which is acceptance, which we were speaking to earlier today. Um, it tells the entire community and whoever comes to Kirkland that we accept everyone and not just those who are easily accepted. As an educator, we have trainings at the beginning of every year that, um, that deal with, um, talk about warning signs for mental health and problems and suicide. And one of the things that we are taught is that students who are a part of the LGBTQ plus community are far more likely to commit suicide and have mental health problems than their fellow classmates. And a lot of this comes from a lack of acceptance, from feeling as though their community and their peers hate them. This sidewalk sends a clear visual message that you are seen, you are welcome, and you are accepted. The first time I saw a private sidewalk, I was in Vancouver, British Columbia, and I had just come out to my family and my friends. And while my friends and family were super accepting, I was worried about how my community would react. And the second I saw a pride sidewalk, it felt as though a weight was lifted off my shoulders. Even though I didn't know a single person in that community, I felt safe and accepted. I felt seen. The Pride Sidewalk in Kirkland does the same thing. It says that even though there are people in the world right now who do not accept you, we do. We see you and we welcome you. I hope that Kirkland chooses to stand up for their whole community and say what the sidewalk represents. We see you and we accept you. Thank you, Catherine. The next speaker is Annika Shinoda. Welcome, Ms. Shinoda. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Annika Shinoda. I'm 17, and I'm a junior at Lake Washington High School. I enjoy reading, writing, and history. I'm also an Asian bisexual woman, and I'm here to speak about the Pride Sidewalk in Kirkland. I didn't really begin thinking about my queerness until middle school, and from there it was a long road to self-actualization and self-acceptance. As you can imagine, there were some, but not a lot, of resources for kids like me, especially kids like me, who are navigating what it meant to be a woman, a person of color, and queer. I'm telling you this because that crosswalk down at the marina is a symbol for queer people across Kirkland. It represents us as a community, our queerness, our trans and intersex siblings, and our community members of color. On Monday, I was out on that marina sidewalk writing messages to my community. I went home with chafed knees, sore from kneeling on hot, dirty pavement, and to tell you the truth, I was angry. I was furious because too many of us give so much of ourselves, infinitely more than just scraped knees, to our queer family, and yet our work and presence can still be burned over, redacted, in a matter of minutes. As Councilperson Falcone eloquently put it, Symbols matter, and the installation of this crosswalk is one way that the city is working to create an inclusive and belonging place for all community members, and I wholeheartedly agree. Young people like me are not as tuned into local politics, but I can tell you that plenty of my queer friends live, work, and spend their free time at the Kirkland Marina. From personal experience, I can tell you that any public acknowledgement of queerness is a triumph for us. 
it brings us so much joy, so much queer joy to see a piece of ourselves being celebrated by Kirkland. So as you deliberate over what actions to take in response to a hateful act of vandalism, I'd like to remind you all of what that crosswalk symbolizes. A community full of love and strife and new life and hope, and I hope that tonight you will all choose redress. We'll choose to continue to uplift a part of your community that works tirelessly to protect itself and to be heard. I have spent far too much of my life having people tell me who I'm allowed to be, how loud I can raise my voice, and I am finished with that because the queer community of Kirkland deserves a symbol, and I implore you tonight to restore it. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Ms. Shinoda. Next speaker is Jan Young and Susan Vossler sharing. We have a slideshow to show you. Kathy, can you start the clock over? Yeah. Hi, I'm Jan Young, and I represent the Eastside Pride Pacific Northwest group. Um, first of all, I wanted to thank um, Catherine and Annika for their heartfelt and brave statements. Um, it was just incredible. And uh, what, when we found out about the crosswalk um, being put in, we were all so excited and elated. Um, and then when vandalism happened, we were very hurt and um, disheartened and angry about the senseless and hateful act. After celebrating and doing so much work to elevate the LGBTQIA community, we felt an overwhelming need to counter with a positive community gathering near the damaged crosswalk. And here's Susan. So, um, yeah, I didn't come prepared to say, to say anything tonight, but um, with tears in my eyes, um, yeah, I'm, I'm so sad about what happened to the crosswalk, um, but I'm, um, there's silver linings to everything that happens, and um, you know, people um, coming to speak to you like this is, is part of that silver lining, so you hear um, how much that crosswalk means to them, um, to all of us. I'm the parent of a transgender son, and um, Eastside Pride is looking forward to working with you in whatever steps you take to hopefully repair that crosswalk. Um, you are going to be a model. Um, we work with lots of Eastside um, cities, and Kirkland is a model. And so here's looking at you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you both. Oh, and um, just so you know, uh, during the break, I think, we will be presenting the, the, we had some banners out where people wrote messages, um, uh, and we'll be presenting those to, um, I think, city manager during the break. So, and council. Thank you. Thank you. The next speaker is Kurt Dresner, followed by Madison Reed and Ashley Child. Hi, good evening. Uh, my name is Kurt Dresner. I live, uh, work, shop, and dine in Kirkland. Some of my favorite places to go are on Park Lane, including Zeke's, Veggie Thai Forever, uh, Cactus, Butternut Squash Enchiladas, anyone, and uh, Serena Gelato, where I've never tried a flavor that did not blow my mind. My absolute favorite times to be on Park Lane have been when it is fully open to pedestrians. That's why it's been so utterly disappointing to see the reaction of some of the Park Lane businesses to the exciting prospect of fully pedestrianizing Park Lane at the heart of our urban downtown business district. In response to some of the misinformation floating around, I'd like to state some incontrovertible facts. First of all, there are over 96,000 residents in Kirkland who all have a stake in what Park Lane looks like, and more importantly, what kind of city we are becoming. Do each of those residents individually have the same stake as a business owner on Park Lane? No. But should 38 business owners dictate the fate of downtown? No. Secondly, the changes being proposed are not irreversible. Park Lane has changed many times over Kirkland's history, and it will change again in the future. Many of the options being considered are quickly reversible, and even permanent options can be first explored in a more temporary fashion. Third, and even more notable this month, Accessibility means more than parking. People with disabilities are more likely to walk or roll, more likely to live in a zero-car household, and more likely to need more space. 40% of adults with disabilities do not drive a car at all. The idea that accessibility should only be viewed in the context of people who are old enough to drive, have a driver's license, have access to a car, and can walk from their car, but not from the Lake and Central lot on the same block, is absurd. But that's exactly how we're being asked to think about accessibility. What about hard of hearing people who want to have a conversation but have to compete with the sound of revving engines? What about people with asthma who have to deal with the exhaust of every car that idles or circles the block because none of the spots on Park Lane are open anyway? Fourth, the idea that making a street mostly car-free makes it a park is laughable, and those making that claim should be embarrassed. This statement is as ridiculous as claiming that allowing cars on Park Lane makes it a freeway. Finally, Park Lane is a special place, but there is nothing peculiar about Park Lane. Park Lane is not the unique exception to the decades of research and mountains of evidence on the ways we build our cities, encourage community, and make great, accessible, prosperous places. The sky will not fall if we eliminate 17 parking spots on a block where 60% of the land is already dedicated to parking. It's no wonder that since I moved to Kirkland 14 years ago, I have not ever, not one time, failed to find parking downtown. We have a choice. We can let Park Lane fade into irrelevance, or we can harness its potential and make it the centerpiece of our safer, more productive, more people-oriented downtown business district. Thank you. Thank you. The next speaker is Madison Reed, followed by Ashley Child. Welcome, Ms. Reed. This is short. Um, okay, so I'm Madison Reed. I own Fetch Dog Store. Um, I think closing Park Lane to cars is a terrible idea and will be detrimental to the businesses on the street. Having a store right across from the new apartments on Lake Street, 
I've seen firsthand how terrible business is when cars have nowhere to park. When the weather is terrible, which is about half the year, um, it's a ghost town downtown. People want convenience, and walking in the rain or having to circle around for a parking spot is, gonna, is going to deter people from coming downtown at all. When Lake Street is closed for construction, and if you guys shut Park Lane down, there's going to be nowhere for people to park, and I wouldn't be surprised if lots of places went out of business. Our businesses are a huge and integral part of this community, yet it seems like you're doing everything you can to make it impossible for us to stay. If 38 out of the 38 businesses on Park Lane are against this closure, then it seems like the choice should be clear. Thank you. <clears throat> the next speaker is Ashley Child, followed by Alex Zimmerman. Welcome, Ms. Child. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Ashley Child, and I am the owner of Nyanza Bridal. I am here tonight with regards to the proposal to, to close Park Lane and would like to voice my opposition. Nyanza Bridal is located at 123 Lake Street South, directly across from the new Villa Apartments. For the past two years, my business, like so many others, has been significantly impacted by the construction and especially the elimination of parking during construction of this new building. I know firsthand what it is like to not have parking available in front of or even near my business, even for those who are elderly or handicapped. For two years, I heard about it daily from every single customer who set foot in my store. And I know it had an impact on their experience at my business. Brides were not able to bring parents or grandparents with them to this most important of shopping experiences because they knew that parking would be such a challenge. It was a fact that they would have to park blocks away from my business and this distance simply wasn't feasible for some of those they wanted to have join them for this most special and exciting time. If people were unwilling to deal with these challenges when shopping for this most significant of events, what does that mean for the most casual shoppers and diners? To say that it would be a deterrent would be an understatement. While traffic and parking at Lake Street South has just recently started to return to normal, the closure of Park Lane would simply shift the problem to a new location. And this comes at a time when we are about to see an influx in visitors and tenants as uh, Villa apartments open and new tenants and businesses move in. Having what I have experienced, what I have, a constant interruption and outright elimination of parking over the past two years, I know no business should have to endure such challenges. I vote no to a permanent year-round closure to traffic of Park Lane. Thank you. Thank you. The last speaker signed up is Alex Zimmerman. Dig Heil, Dem Nazi Gestapo Fascist, a mafiosi. My name is Alex Zimmerman, I live here more than 35 years and come to this city, to this chamber for many years. Situation what is we have right now is so strange and so dangerous, so make me totally sick. I give you a classic example what's going on. Um, Bellevue Council, stopping my speech for last month, totally, yeah. To me, this look like a Nazi anti-Semite hysterica. 
why I call this hysterica? Because they support a uh, Iranian Muslim. And Jewy Muslim is a best friend, you know this. <laughs> For how many thousand years? <laughs> Two thousand, fifteen hundred. <laughs> no, I understand this what they do in this, you know what this mean? Yeah, support Iranian Muslim person. Yeah. They don't like me because I'm Jew. They don't like don't Trump. Like Trump, yeah, it's normal. Nothing unusual. Situation so critical because Iran is number one American in Israel enemy. They kill Jew. They kill Christian. It's go for thousand years and nothing changed and nothing will be changed. So everybody, you doing this too? Your council support Iranian Muslim too. You support Iranian Muslim who live in America only for a few years. By definition, this makes me totally sick. Who are you? Are you don't understand what is Iran want right now? We wa they want atomic bomb together with Russia. The first atomic bomb will be in Israel, and second atomic bomb will be in New York. <laughs> we have 9-11. Probably this is not enough because idiots like you support Iran. Is this a point? When you support Iran here, so they're thinking, aha, they support us. We need to kill them. In Israel, in the United States, Jew in American shoulder to shoulder staying against Iran for 100 years. It's not simple business. It's very complicated. So when you support Iran, you know what is mean. Iranian people, you know what is mean. Iranian Muslim, you know what is mean. My question very simple. Why are you doing this? Are you stupid or are you part of Democrat mafia? Because only Democrat mafia can support Iranian Muslim against Alex Zimmerman, small bug, and big monster, Trump. It's exactly what's happened. So by definition, you are pure bandita, a mafia. This is exactly what has happened. You understand what is I'm talking? You know this expression, let me know who your friend and I will tell you who you are. And you support this, yes, yes. Few people from here support this. So my question right now, very simple. When this will be stopped? When you start being American? Zimmerman. Thank you very much. On behalf of the council, I would like to apologize to you all for having to expose you to Mr. Zimmerman's hate speech. We have no further sign-ups. Thank you. Okay, is there anyone else wishing to address the council at this time? Seeing none, I will declare this items from the audience period closed. Takes us to our consent agenda. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, uh, 5C, the oh, petition. 5C, sorry, special presentation. So uh, we don't have a formal presentation on this, but I'm just going to highlight uh, we did receive a petition, a petition G23-239. And as you might recall, under council rules, uh, the council has three options when you get a petition. First is to accept the petition for further study. Second is to accept the petition, refer it to staff for follow-up. And third is to accept the petition and determine no further action is needed. Um, as you saw in the uh, staff memo, our recommendation is option two, that the council accepts the petition, returns it to the staff for follow-up. Um, it would be our intent to include it as part of the Park Lane study, which is going to be uh, brought before the council in September for a study session. Uh, but the other options are also available to the council. So happy to answer any questions that you might have. Questions, council? Council Member Black? Thank you, Madam Mayor. Are, 
Uh, city manager, are you looking for a motion on yeah, that? Yeah, we, we need a motion to dispose of the Madam Mayor, I'll petition. get the discussion started with a motion. Motion to accept the petition and refer it to staff for follow-up. Second. Moved by Councilmember Black, seconded by Councilmember Curtis. Discussion? Questions on the motion to accept option two, turn it over to the staff to come back by, separate, by September. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. And just uh, one additional uh, comment. Uh, we have been told that there might be additional signatures for this petition, and we as staff would be treating that as an addendum to this petition, not as a separate petition. So as those come in, we'll just go ahead and, and add them to this document for September. Thank you. Okay, that takes us to our consent calendar. Before we have a motion, I'd like to ask Deputy Mayor Arnold to present an audit of the accounts. Thank you, Madam Mayor. We had payroll in the amount of 5616000 $456.79 and bills in the amount of $8,738,455.21. Thank you. Can I get a motion to approve the consent calendar? So moved. Second. So moved by Councilmember Falcone, seconded by Councilmember Curtis to accept the consent calendar. Any discussion? Councilmember um, Nixon. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I'd like to pull item 8H1 from the consent calendar and add it to the regular business agenda. Thank you. So the question is on, do I have to have a motion or anything for that? It's just pulled. It's just done. Okay. So does it equal an amendment? No, I think it, he, uh, any council member can pull an item from consent and then he, he would just add it to the business. Okay, then can I get, um, can I get a vote uh, to approve the consent calendar? No ordinances. Um, all those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion, consent calendar is approved. Okay, that takes us to item nine, our first business agenda item, automated noise enforcement update. City manager. Okay, uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, so these next two items actually are gonna be presented by our police chief, Sherry Harris, but the first is automated notice enforcement update and she'll also be joined by several folks uh, online. So, uh, Chief Harris, welcome. It's signed out. <laughs> you do not want me to sign in? Oh, I see. not have the document open then uh, let's try that again okay yeah we'll open in just a moment welcome chief thank you madam mayor council 
So I have a presentation tonight, and online, I also want to introduce, and I'm not sure if you can see him in your screens, because I can't from mine. Andrew, can you? Can you promote uh, Saul? I think you need to change your view option. Keter? He's, he's already a panelist, Chief. So I just want to make sure that we can see his. And John Starbird, so there's one more. Why isn't it showing me? All right. There we go. Can we do, Andrew, can we do it in a way that it shows on our screens? There you go. All right. Thank you very much. I want to provide a briefing tonight um, about some very new technology that Kirkland is partnering uh, with. Uh, I'll let the vendor actually introduce himself on some automated noise enforcement um, technology. And so just let Saul introduce himself. Hi, everybody. Saul Kider here with Sithron. We're the company behind the automated vehicle noise enforcement. Um, and we're a very young startup, and Kirkland is our first pilot where we're actually piloting this new technology. So we're really excited to partner with the city and partner with the chief on this really cool technology. I would like to point out he has a pretty fantastic microphone. <laughs> I noticed that he looks like a DJ. Yeah. Um, very thankful as well to uh, Public Works Operations for supporting this project. They've had, had a lot of support from them as well. Um, so about seven slides briefly go over some of the information that was in the history of this project that was in the staff memo. Um, in 2019, the traffic, the, the legislature approved a budget proviso that the Washington Traffic Safety Commission would oversee and a pilot program um, for up to three cities to implement the use of automated vehicle noise enforcement cameras. Um, but in 2019, they didn't exist. Um, and since about 2020, we have had an increase in complaints on noisy vehicles, noise in general, um, but certainly on racing vehicles and loud vehicles. And so the department and city staff um, uh, asked the Traffic Safety Commission to allow us to try this pilot program with uh, your support and the city manager's support as well, um, and approved an agreement uh, with Saul's company to develop that integrated vehicle noise technology. Um, I've put just one of the heat maps that was in the staff memo, and that's uh, 911 calls that were received in 2021 regarded in racing. And so you can see the bright red spot there is where the most calls have come in on racing. And I think there's some community members behind me that might live really close to that location. Um, but you can see that we have them in different, different places within the city. Uh, there, there was another heat map in the staff memo um, on modified vehicles and loud vehicles and exhaust, uh, but focused our first uh, project on Lake Washington Boulevard near 59th Street and Houghton Beach Park. Um, there are signs that are posted there about street racing noise pilot program in progress um, to warn motorists that is part of the proviso agreement as well, requirements, that we have an informative landing page that was developed it's on the city's website. We had a press conference that Councilmember Pascal supported us um, at, and then just want to make sure that the community is aware that that's going on there. 
Um, and really the goal of this project is to try and see if you can capture noise violations that involve vehicles. Um, the proviso was extended this year and it, it expires June 25th of 2025. And so we would have, it would have expired in June of 2023, but it was extended for an additional amount of time. And I just, there were a couple other standards that were in the staff memo, and I just wanted to share them because if you try to decipher this, it's pretty confusing um, based on uh, what kind of vehicle it is, a motorcycle, what's the weight of the vehicle, when was it manufactured, what's the speed limit at the time, and distance. So there's a lot, there's a lot to this um, project that we're trying to capture. Um, Lake Washington Boulevard is under 45 miles an hour uh, speed zone. So that's what we're looking at right there. But really, in general, most of our police officers uh, cite for a modified exhaust. And I, I did share that in the, in the staff memo that the WAC is pretty complicated. So just want to show this, this picture right here. And it's, it's, there is a big arrow that's uh, there at the corner. It kind of looks like a giant microphone. That was the first device that was installed in October of 2022. And that's about the time we did the press conference. Um, and it had about eight microphones and a camera. It was connected via modem, had a protective case. And there were about 3,000 incidents in the first month that were captured. Um, all facial features are blurred in the, these videos. They're in secure storage. It really is with the vendor. We, we could ask him to see those videos, but we do not have like a portal where we can go look at them. I just say that weather conditions severely impacted the performance of the first equipment, and it uh, there was a lot of rain and snow this winter, um, and so there was a second device that was built um, with 16 cameras. I'm sorry, 16 microphones and a camera. Um, improved technology. Now it's using 4G, 5G technology, and there's a 20-second audio video recording. And then they're developing some super cool um, kind of heat dot signatures that locate the source of the noise, and then some object recognition as well. So pretty phenomenal software that's going on behind the scenes. Yes, Council Member Fenkel. Thank you, Chief Harris. Um, can you just confirm for those watching that the, the second to last and third to last bullet point on the first list applied to the second device as well, that their facial features are still blurred and that they're still securely stored? Yes. Thank you. The improvements, I should have said, are the following list. And then I'll just stop for a second and see if Saul has anything he wants to add to that. Uh, yes, those features also carry through into the second device. <coughs> those are software features. So we basically made implemented those uh, features before we installed the first device. Um, the uh, To the weather point, which was one of the initial points, um, we installed the new version of the device um, back in May, and all throughout the rain, the device and the microphones held up perfectly well. So we're really excited about the findings from the improvement of the case uh, design itself. That, those are current pictures of uh, the equipment today. Um, the next couple slides, I'm gonna share some examples. And unfortunately, the sound is not going to come through like you wish it would. Um, like I wish it would so you could really hear this. But um, we're, this is a view of Houghton Beach South. 
Uh, this is from October, so this is the, the initial equipment. Um, and the sound level bar in the bottom right-hand corner is gonna give you an idea of um, the sound that a vehicle that's coming down the boulevard will emit. You can see the little, do you call that, is that a technical term? It's all a heat blob? Yeah, I think that's the technical term. Okay. So I looked um, and believe that this would, should be about, it should be 80 or less decibels based on that vehicle. So this is the equipment that's there now. And I might play this twice and it'll just allow Saul to talk about what you're gonna see. So what we see here is the implementation of the new software, which the chief mentioned. Uh, we have both object recognition running on the vehicle type. So you see a motorbike, you see a car. There's a confidence level that sits alongside the top of the rectangle that states with confidence what that vehicle type is. And then the second thing you'll notice is on the video. I was going to try and play it again, but uh -oh. it's not. It's not gonna work. Well, you, you, you saw the um, heat blobs kind of riding on top of the, the vehicles. The, that's actually a technology called Acular. And Acular is a framework for acoustic beamforming um, within Python. Uh, basically what it does is it uh, determines where the source of sound is and then kind of spreads a blob of sound uh, ratings out from that central blob to show exactly kind of where uh, the most sound is coming from. We also made some refinements to the user interface and also to the portal, which we're not sharing the portal right now. But uh, here we go. So you'll notice that for a second, for a brief moment there, the Acular blob tracked the motorcycle, and then the motorcycle exceeded the uh, preset decibel threshold of 92 dB. And once it did, it crossed over that, snapshot was captured, and we have this capture. Councilmember Cruz. That was my question. So the, when the threshold pops up, it's that particular vehicle has maximized the range of noise it can make. That's correct. Yep. Then I just put this back um, so you could see that motorcycles really would be, again, less than 83 decibels, and so that was 94. Um, certainly some great technology that is um, still still working on refining that. I think Saul would, could share, we've kind of had to increase the decibel level to try to find where you wouldn't be just capturing. There's a lot of loud vehicles out there. so. Yeah, since we installed back in May, we've realized um, over 2,000 uh, 90 plus dB incidents. Um, and it, typically there's uh, an array of vehicles. We tend to see motorcycles, um, um, 
foreign market made vehicles, uh, the vehicles that were manufactured outside of the United States. Inside of the US, we have pretty strict regulations on the sound pressure that a vehicle is allowed to emit from a factory state. But outside of the US, those same regulations don't necessarily apply everywhere. So when we see foreign made vehicles that cross over that sound pressure threshold, uh, that's why. Um, and yeah, to the chief's point, you know, we're continuing to advance the technology rapidly. We have quite a few things um, in progress right now on the development side that are going to continue to refine and advance what we're doing. And we're really excited to start showcasing it uh, more. Thank you, uh, Councilmember Black. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Thank you for this presentation. A quick question about um, the technology. Is the technology able to zero out background noise? So are those, for example, are those, or well, another way to ask my question is, are those decibel uh, numbers we're seeing, does that include an underlying amount of background noise? There is background noise, it's road noise. <clears throat> so with acoustic beam forming, the way that it's um, triangulating in on that sound source is once it picks up, one, once one microphone picks up that the sound pressure is rising, all of the microphones beat in on that area. So we're able to get a general feel of specificity, even though it does include some background noise. So what we do is we find a sound setting for what road noise typically is, and then we just adjust the algorithm based off of that uh, preset sound pressure reading. So. Um, and one quick follow-up question, if you don't mind. Um, and when the, yeah, and we've all, everyone who's lived in Western Washington knows when it rains, it's louder. Um, and so are adjustments made based on weather conditions, particularly rain, which we do, of course, have a lot of. Absolutely. Yeah, so we're basically doing the same thing we, that we do for road noise for rain. Um, so we're taking general readings of that and we're um, modifying the algorithm to include uh, the deduction basically of that average sound pressure so that we can get a clear view of what that plus the road noise plus the aftermarket exhaust plus, you know, noise from the vehicle looks like. Um, so we're really trying to beat in on exactly where that sounds coming from and trying to obfuscate anything else that's not directly related to that sound with that algorithm. Councilmember Pascal. Yeah, thank, thank you for the presentation too. Uh, very interesting. You know, uh, just a couple questions and a couple statements. Um, one is, uh, you know, one of the complaints that often people will cite when they get caught by like radar for like speed enforcement is they'll cite that calibration of the device was incorrect. Um, how do we go about making sure that this device is calibrated, that we can prove that you know, down, down the road. That's probably something that you'll be looking at later, but, but is that something that you're thinking about and being able to prove? Absolutely, and the good thing about our device right now is we can calibrate it remotely. So we could calibrate on a, a continual basis if that's nightly or if that's weekly or, or whatever we need to do in order to meet that threshold of accountability for calibration. And I, I would add that there will additional tests that will need to be, that will need to occur um, to ensure that this would actually hold up in court. Um, the law doesn't currently allow us to issue violations. Um, so that would also be something that would need to occur in the future is actually some kind of legislative action um, similar to what we have for school zones and um, 
other speed zones, construction zones, um, and other, other automated technology. So that would be a change that would need to occur in the future as well. Right, yeah, thanks for raising that. So the other part of it would be the automated technology around taking a photo of the license plate and then someone getting a, a ticket in the mail, uh, similar to the traffic safety cameras. So my understanding, and just kind of if you do a search on the web, is that other communities have, have done this or implemented uh, automated noise enforcement. You, quick search will show like Knoxville, Tennessee, New York City, um, and other cities across across the United States. And I, I remember when the press release was uh, was issued, um, I got some emails uh, from just random folks that were really interested in this, like a professor at University of Texas that was doing research. So have you, have you had discussions or coordination with, with other companies that already do this? And are we learning from their experiences um, so that we can kind of take the ball and kind of move it further down the field, so to speak? Um, can, kind of, can you share a little bit about what, what conversations you've had? Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, you know, there have been trials, there have been other pilots. Um, I think what we're doing is substantially different in terms of the core technology stack. Um, a lot of the, well, actually all of the pilots that I've, we've seen so far, all three, uh, have used basically OTC uh, microfilm ar arrays to basically do um, something that's far more complicated than what an over-the-counter microphone array would do. So we've built custom software and custom hardware to basically solve for that really tricky problem of triangulating exactly where the sound's coming from. In addition to that, uh, with the hardware component, um, we're in an, a really interesting environmental space up here, uh, weather-wise. So with the first device, we learned quickly uh, that microphones get really wet. And once they get really wet, they don't work and they need time to dry out. And I don't think other pilots have necessarily encountered that. Um, we did and we faced it head on. And I think we built a solution now with the case enclosure uh, where we can accommodate rain, we can accommodate ice, um, and time will tell. But uh, I think we're really confident in where the device is at right now with regards to that weatherproofing element. Um, the other thing that um, I think the team is doing a really good job of right now is listening to other cities and talking to other cities and getting feedback on what worked and what didn't work. And so we're taking all those learnings in and it, using those learnings to advance the technology and also our IP. So I think we're in a really good spot and I think, uh, yeah, I'm really excited about, you know, continuing to evolve the technology with, uh, with the city of Kirkland. Well, yeah, that's, that's great to hear that you're, you're learning from others you're, you're, and we're building a better, better, I don't know, lack of better term, mousetrap. Um, <laughs> I guess I, I just, I just want to express my support and really appreciate all your work on this. Uh, really interested in making sure we advance this, that we provide the, the information necessary to, you know, for others, for legislature, I guess, to approve it and for, you know, the Traffic Safety Commission to actually uh, sign on to it, right, as, hey, this is something that we should support as a commission office uh, since they essentially oversee these things um, across the state. So uh, anything 
and oh, and and as as uh, as a representative that that is on a, a traffic safety commission uh, council, uh, we talk about these things all the time. So if you ever need any help uh, advocating at the commission office, um, it's a pretty small office. So the staff that support us on the council are the same staff that you're probably sending this information to. Um, so be happy to support. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, thank you for this. It's kind of interesting to see the, the change in technology just through this pilot, which is kind of cool that we got to be a part of that. Um, I have just a few questions. Um, in watching the video, we, it looked like it was tracking vehicles going both directions. Is there ever an instance where like, both, there's two vehicles like simultaneously in violation at the same time? And are we able to differentiate those with this technology? Right well, now, we're basically tracking to a single incident at wi within a 20-second period, so 10 seconds leading up to the incident and then 10 seconds after. If another vehicle crosses the threshold during that 20-second period, right now we won't capture it. Um, technically, it's feasible if we add another camera to the stack and totally doable to add another lane uh, facing maybe the other direction so we can have multi-lane support. Um, and that's definitely something that we're actively testing right now um, and trying to productize is being able to capture multi-lane and multi-incident simultaneously. Great, thank you. Another thing I hear from folks in the community is that they're, they're concerned about this being an equity issue. I saw in um, some of the slides that you had about like different ages of the, or when the vehicles were manufactured, older vehicles tend to be a little bit louder. Um, and I. I guess I want to understand the assumptions behind that a little bit more. Like, is that if it's a perfectly well-kept vehicle that's in good condition, that's an older vehicle? Because I, what I hear from folks is that some older vehicles that tend to be not as well-kept, that folks can't afford to keep up as well, are significantly louder than well-kept vehicles or newer vehicles. Is that the case? I just don't know enough about that to really know if that's, like, if older vehicles that, again, someone can't afford to keep up might be louder, even if they didn't modify it, they're not trying to be have a loud vehicle, they're not racing. It, it's it a valid concern. Yeah. And um, I think, uh, you know, we're kind of leading with equity at the front of what we're doing, obviously with cameras and microphones, you know, we don't want to import any kind of bias. The codes that we're sharing are from the uh, Washington State Code. So those are like predefined society, acoustic, uh, society of Acoustic Engineer tables that outline basically what those thresholds um, are uh, set legally. Um, so, but we have the ability to import those and then basically decision off them. Um, but technically it's really a policy issue. And I think um, we'll try to accommodate as much as possible. I don't, Chief, if you have anything else you wanna add to that. I think that automated enforcement provides, it's the equity of the future. Because if you can't um, afford to fix your car and it's defective, that that is um, a violation under the law. Or you've modified it because you can't afford to buy a foreign import and you want it to sound cool, um, then you modify it. And that's much more easier for an officer to see and understand and write a ticket for than um, trying to have some kind of uh, noise reading device and understand that they're 50, 50 feet away and what's the age of it. So I think there's more equity in automated enforcement than there is um, 
in, in an officer trying to make those determinations and use discretion on the street. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the, the feedback I heard wasn't necessarily comparing officer in force versus automated, but just in general. So I just wanted to understand that better. Thank you. Um, and then my third and final question is, can you talk to, a we, you um, spoke about the future of the technology, right? And some of the potential future implementation if uh, state law were to be changed. Can you talk about what the next steps are for Kirkland specifically? Like what are our near term next steps? So one of the things that we, um, in the contract that we identified was doing the study on Central Way as well. Um, so that's still on our to-do list with the project. Um, and then just being able to, I mean, it's really a lot on Saul and his, his company and defining that software so that you can identify those vehicles and overcome some of the challenges. Um, it is still a par partly a street racing proviso. So when you talk about vehicles that might make sound at the same time, many times racing vehicles are going to do that. So that's still important. Um, and Saul, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think um, you know we're are, we're working on the second device, which we'll install on Central shortly, and it's going to have um, even more upgrades than the the device that we installed on Houghton um, in May. So we're really excited to showcase that. And to the street racing point, um, I think with with the installation on Central Way um, and the way that the camera will be uh, the direction that the camera will be facing, um, we did some in the field data gathering uh, for a couple weekends in a row um, late last year, just to kind of get a, get a capture of where street racing um, egress is from downtown Kirkland. And it's really that intersection on Central Way. And uh, I forget the cross street off the top of my mind, but Central Way right next to Google campus. And um, so we're really excited to start capturing um, street racing incidents. We have captured a few incidents already where there are a number of cars rolling through the um, camera on Houghton and late at night and they're very close together and they have a lot of spoilers and it's very loud. Um, so we're able to, we're really excited to get that second device up and then um, start capturing basically more of those, uh, those high sound pressure incidents of you know, 90 plus, 92 dB plus um, incidents. Thank you, Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Thank you, Chief Saul. Saul, I used to work in product tech, so this whole conversation is taking me so far back. And this is the most enthralled I think I've seen an audience in a very long time, so. <laughs> um, and I live in Houghton, so I, I hear you and I hear it. So I just wanna talk about the technology is still evolving. We're learning really important things. We're looking at data trends. So are we getting reports out of what we're seeing on the street? Obviously, we can't enforce any tickets, but we're, we, we know how many cars and what decibels are going through, right? Yeah, and you know, the data that we're seeing is pretty much the data that we predicted we would see. Yeah. We're seeing it, aftermarket modifications, loud bikes, um, and street racing vehicles. And the data reflects the complaints that we're getting too. So I assume the people that are watching this and they're in the audience are like, this is really great, but when are we gonna start <laughs> being able to write tickets and warnings and so forth? So we are continuing to do our, our enforcement while this is going on. Yes. And 
when we're doing that, how are we uh, determining the decibel level of the um, cars, the vehicles that are going by? We, we do not currently enforce decibel levels. We are current, the, the most common enforcement would be for having a modified exhaust. And we're doing that, how are we determining? Well, you can see it. Okay. You can hear it. Okay. Um, there are often other violations that occur, like speeding mm -hmm. as well. Okay. Um, in talking with uh, some of the traffic officers about their experience, it's typically there's a vehicle, they can hear it coming. And then they turn on the radar and yeah. they capture speed reading and, and stop them. Okay. Well, I just want the community to know that we're still doing that while we're doing this yes. beta test. My other, the, my other questions is, are, are, what is our timeline? We're going to do this for two more years. We realize that we need to do advocacy in the state legislature to allow us to use this technology to write warnings and tickets. What is what is happening in that space, and how can I help? Well, I, I think what we we said earlier, and that Saul could confirm this, is just continuing to improve this. So when it's ready to be rolled out to the legislature, that the evidence is tight, that it would hold up in court, um, that the technology is identifying the vehicle, and all of those things, continuing to blur faces, that capture license plates, um, so continuing to improve all of that. Okay. So not next session. <laughs> Saul, that starts in January. They'll pre-file in like November. Yeah, I, I yeah. believe so. Um, you know, really, it's a matter of us iterating the technology as fast as we can and getting to a point where there's just general consensus across the board that we're ready to move into that uh, next legislative conversation. Um, we're ready, I think, to continue to demonstrate that we're capturing vehicles, making loud noises. Um, and there's definitely some policy considerations that go along with um, what constitutes a ready state. And so I think we just need to continue to have those conversations with legal policy and, you know, get to a point where we're ready to present. And um, if that's next session, then maybe it's next session. I think we still have to have those conversations, though. And I was teasing a little bit about next session, but I agree with Saul <laughs> and that it's time to start having those conversations. So, okay, thank you. Um, before I call on Dr. or De Deputy Mayor uh, um, Arnold, Saul, just a quick question. Do, have we identified legislators that we're gonna be working with? Um, I We have pushed through a proviso at the state level. Um, and so some of the senators and House reps that have been in support of the, uh, of the proviso in the past, Senator Hobbs, um, would, I, I feel would be championing champions of the project. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Deputy Arnold. My questions have been asked and answered. All right. Thanks very much. Oh, sorry. Councilmember Black, back to you. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, if everyone else has already had a chance to speak, I just want to make a, a, up, a quick report. Uh, for the, my colleagues and also uh, folks in the public, I uh, want to let you all know that um, I've discussed this pilot project uh, with the Sound City Association members of the Regional Law Safety and Justice Committee, uh, which uh, I, uh, I chair that uh, caucus, and they've expressed a great deal of interest in hearing about our pilot program. Um, so uh, 
me and uh, Chief Harris are going to be uh, giving a presentation next month uh, to the Regional Law, Safety, and Justice Committee. Uh, so that's folks from many different jurisdictions and many different organizations. Uh, but I think it's a real – well, one, thank you, Chief Harris, for making the time to do that presentation to that group. And I think it's really important for some of the reasons we've discussed that this ultimately is going to require um, uh, some energy uh, from not just from Kirkland but from the broader community, um, including, uh, you know, bringing some uh, energy to the, the legislature um, on uh, the issue of enforcement. So I think that will be a great opportunity for Kirkland to show what we're doing and to um, start that discussion. Um, so. Just want to make sure everyone's aware of that and also to thank Chief Harris for that effort. Thank you for sharing it. Um, and I think we are done with questions. All right. Thank you, Saul. Thank you, John. Thank you, Saul and thank John, you, for joining us. Sherry, are you just going to stay moving right into your next topic? Okay. City Manager, did you want to introduce it? Just uh, was going to introduce the next topic, which was a conversation that the uh, police department and the city manager's office has been having with the school district about um, involving the school resource officer contract to what we're calling community resource officers. So once again, the chief is going to give you an overview of that, and we're happy to answer any questions. Council Whitehead. All right. Believe that sharing screen. Thank you very much, Madam Mayor, Council, um, for allowing me to talk a little bit about a school resource officer reimagining program that we expect to be called a community resource officer program in the very near future. Um, this is a partnership that we're working on with uh, Lake Washington School District. Again, our primary purpose in the strong relationship that we've had uh, for many, many years is really to keep students out of the criminal justice system, um, to provide expertise and guidance to the district related to threats and safety and security, um, to increase understanding of the district and the department's operations and the impacts on service and response from both, and to also have pro positive interactions between law enforcement officers school staff, students, and family. Um, it is a huge opportunity to connect with staff, students, um, and connect them with supportive services. So just a super brief uh, history that I wanted to share that we, for a very long time, have had one SRO, and then in 2014, increased the number of school resource officers to two. Um, and then in 2018, that program was expanded um, after the passage of Proposition 1 uh, for enhanced police services and co a community safety measure. And then there were SROs assigned in high schools and middle schools. And in 2020, we did a very robust process Thank you, Mr. Lopez. Um, and with an SRO task force and a, a pretty comprehensive report on best practices that provided some recommendations on improvements for both the city and Lake Washington School District, uh, intended to do additional 
community outreach and the pandemic really halted most of that, um, really hampered our ability to do community outreach and do that with the district as well. Uh, in 2022, just last year, on July 5th of 2022, so one year ago, um, the city and Lake Washington School District reduced the number of SROs to four, deploying them in learning communities, so expanding the, the amount of work that one SRO would do um, in more of a lear learning community model. The district reallocated a portion of their budget to student mental health support programs, and while we had the authorization for four SROs this last year, we only filled three positions based on a lack of qualified applicants. So again, we're not just um, filling these positions unless someone, an officer, is actually qualified to do this role. Um, it is extra duty, it is ancillary, it is above being a patrol officer. And so we're here again in 2023, and the district approached us after realizing some significant budget issues and engaged to reduce the number of SROs and reimagine the deployment of officers in schools. So we've been having conversations with the district at length on what would that look like? Um, how could we ensure uh, that the partnership continued and in what would, would that look? And so kind of pulled some of the most important information out of the staff report. Um, this partnership is mutually beneficial. Uh, we want to continue to make adjustments to the program while we prioritize student safety by maintaining safety programs in the district, maintaining trained officers to respond to calls for service involving schools. And these are important calls that are Child Protective Services, CPS, truancy paperwork service. Uh, a lot of times you'll hear that called Becca orders. You know, trespass paperwork service, responding to 911 calls, and have a fairly significant list here that the district and the department have been working on compiling are what are the most important things? Safety programs, trained officer response, and can we convert uh, what we have today to something that's a broader resource for the community and not just the schools? So our proposal is to convert SROs to what we would call community resource officers and maintain all training and certification and be the first point of contact between the department and the district on law enforcement issues, um, but not be stationed at any one school. And I'll talk about that a couple times throughout this presentation. Um, CROs would be available to deploy to other community needs including providing support of traffic and pedestrian concerns in schools, school zones. We've talked a lot about um, bicycle safety and bicycle lane enforcement around schools and kids walking to school. And while we have a traffic unit, their primary concern is also keeping the roads open and investigating crashes. They also do bicycle enforcement and lane enforcement, but um, emphasis patrols in our parks, we do this both on vehicles and uh, on bicycles during the summer months. And then patrols, additional patrols on the Cross Kirkland Corridor, the Boulevard, and our, our various business districts within the city. And obviously supporting patrol during critical incidents. So I know the big question, and I've had 
a couple emails that I've responded to is what's the difference? Um, what will be the difference between having an SRO and something called a community resource officer? And they will still provide engagement and safety programs to all the schools and not be assigned to just one school. In you know, 2012, there was one SRO that primarily um, bounced back and forth between the high schools. Uh, and then in 14, there were two that were just at the high schools and we've expanded since then. And there, uh, this last year, that, that changed dramatically in that they're working in the learning communities. So that step has already been taken to where we're going. Um, they would have additional capacity to provide training to businesses, um, retail, and community groups. So we typically call that ALICE training. It's active shooter training. Um, one of our best instructors is an SRO. He's provided it, that training for staff here at the city. And um, you know the, the bullet about today an SRO would be assigned and greeting students as they enter school. Um, but the vision is in September, they would not be starting out their day at the school and be spending their day there. They would be handling other 911 calls um, that encourage schools and requests from administrators, but it would not be the same proactive policing or police presence that we've seen in the past. Be handling other calls in the city. We talked about bike patrols throughout the year, just not, not just through the summer months. Um, but more importantly, they will maintain their training and be the primary 911 responder to requests from administrators or, or again, 911 calls. Um, right now, we have three officers that are trained in programs that are available to keep students out of the criminal justice system. They're heavily trained in constitutional and civil rights of children's in schools. Um, they, they understand laws governing search and interrogation of youth in schools. There, there's a fairly substantial list of the training that we've talked about in the last couple of years. Um, child and adolescent development, trauma-informed approaches to working with youth. Uh, they, again, their, their basic training was 40 hours, and after that they had 20 and then they've had crisis intervention training for youth, and then they're under the law, there are about 12 different areas that they've had some extensive training. Um, I just will share that, again, the primary reason for the conversation was a drop in enrollment, um, but is involved into how can we reimagine re this. Uh, it started with how about we'll just have again, go back to one SRO in each high school. And that has evolved this year into, let's not, let's not have SROs that are standing at the beginning of school greeting students. Let's have community resource officers that are available for the community, but are primarily responding to schools. Um, I provided, well, this is from Veronica Hill, our senior analyst, I shouldn't say I provided this. Uh, and just an overview of what the funding would look like. We currently, again, have three officers who meet all the criteria for training. And while we had a fourth position that was authorized, uh, we would freeze that position at this time. The school district is, uh, we've been talking to them about providing uh, half the funding for two officers and supporting our third through Proposition 1. 
Uh, we have the most schools in the district, and uh, there's really just one SRO that has been active in, the, in Redmond and in uh, Sammamish, and then in King County, they have not had support at, uh, from the King County Sheriff's Office. Not that they don't support it, they just haven't had the staffing. So um, working with our neighboring cities, the chief in Redmond has supported a similar model of a community resource officer, not just a school resource officer. Uh, but this does pose some additional money out of Prop 1 that um, financial staff have said that there are reserves there that would cover this. And we're still negotiating with the district in what does half of one officer look like. Um, so that has not been finalized. But I put this in the memo to ensure there was an understanding of what a dollar amount could be. It wouldn't be more than this, but it could be less than this. So that's the broad overview. Um, and I can stop sharing. Because I imagine there's questions. Gary, I'm going to start us off. I, I just have one question with regard to a comment and, and a question. The question is, do we provide mutual aid to the other districts? We, we don't uh, necessarily provide daily mutual aid uh, in a critical incident, absolutely. Uh, we do cross-training. I'm thinking in terms of school-oriented problems. So if Sammamish had an issue um, in a school that would be appropriate for a school resource officer to intervene in, or for a community resource officer. Yeah, if we were, if the chief called and said, I need mutual aid, I need some help, and whatever that problem might be, um, if we had the capacity, we would certainly help them. There are times where investigations cross over. Um, there are families that live in the district that their kids go to different schools. So there are times when Child Protective Service, CPS investigations aren't just in Kirkland and we partner with other agencies. Um, that certainly happens. Um, and certainly in a critical incident, we would be uh, sharing resources for sure. Great, thanks. We've for shared that. training as well, done cross Great. training. Okay, and just as a comment, thank you. Um, I think that Kirkland has been in the forefront of developing this program, and I love that. I mean, I love that you've remarked a couple times that it's evolved this way because it's a healthy evolution. I, I feel like every time we we look at the the process again, we come up with something better. So I'm excited about the community resource officers. I really think it's important that we maintain that level of training for those who are actually dealing with students and the, the children in the schools. Um, but this still makes me feel like we're doing a really good job of keeping those kids safe and connected. So thank you for that. Thank you. Now I'll go to Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, I agree with the mayor. I'm really proud of the direction we're going. I'm really proud of the thoughtfulness in each iteration of what we're doing. I know that. You know, as we all know, this is a conversation we've been having for quite a long time. I was on that, as you recall, said task force that we had uh, a few years back. And it's not always an easy conversation. There's a lot of really different opinions on this. And I'm really proud that we're working together and really finding something that's best and keeping um, the student safety in mind and the school safety in mind. So thank you for that. I really do appreciate that. Um, I won't repeat all the comments that I've made at previous discussions. I've made quite a few. 
um, on this topic, other than just to say that, you know, as we know, for those who just may be joining this conversation for the first time um, that are watching, you know, it's well documented that just the presence of police in schools, um, although making many families feel safer, hasn't been shown to improve school safety. Um, and it also harms students, uh, especially black students and students with disabilities. That's been well documented. Uh, that said, even removing police from schools doesn't completely solve this issue. Um, as we know that schools will still call 911 for a variety of situations, um, sometimes when necessary, perhaps some other times when not. And we need to be prepared with a plan for how to handle that appropriately and what our response will be um, without causing unnecessary harm to students. You know, we need a plan for our role in school safety as we move forward. And we're doing just that with this. So thank you for that. I really, really appreciate that. Um, so I generally support the direction of the, of the plan because of that. You know, ideally we want to get to a place where all of our officers are highly trained enough that we can trust them to interact with our children and youth regardless of the, situ of the circumstance. Um, so I would like to see this as somewhat of a temporary interim plan with that long-term vision in mind. And I understand that training is complicated, it's expensive, it, you know, it takes folks away from actually doing the job. I completely understand that. Um, and, you know, as this will be a new program, um, I'd also like us to have uh, a check back just to see how it's going. So perhaps uh, we could get a check back in the spring to see, you know, how things are going. Is this really meeting the needs of what we intended it to do? And if there are any tweaks that are needed, that would give us enough time if we discuss it in the spring to be able to implement for the following school year. Um, okay, so with all that in mind, I do have some questions. Uh, you mentioned uh, Alice training for businesses in your presentation. Is that something we continue to do in schools as well? Uh, we do. Okay, thank you. Um, you also mentioned that on the district side, this is primarily a budget decision. I think you've pretty much partially at least answered this question of, do we have a sense of whether from the school district's perspective they're viewing this as a short-term plan or a long-term plan? Like if their budget situation were to change, do we sense that they have the desire to do this purely out of budgetary concerns. I know you mentioned that that kind of sparked the discussion um, for us to move in this direction, but do we have a sense, I know we can't speak on behalf of the school district, but in the conversations with them? The like, conversations that I've, that I've had with them is that they want to continue to have a partnership. Um, while we have, we have really good police officers in the city of Kirkland, and they have great training, they're good people, there are operational issues within schools that if you're not a kind of understand it, if you don't know the administrators, if you don't know um, the different plans that students might have with, within the school, you, you just, it's, you, you're at a disadvantage in handling a call. So the conversations we've had is they wanna continue to have a partnership and it, when, the, when the conversation started, they really felt it was dire straits. Um, and that has, that has evolved, they, they've built their budget, they've had done some other things with programs. So I have not gotten a sense from them that they want to eliminate this program. Um, again, because of the need for partnerships and understanding of how the operations work. And, and again, maintaining this higher level of training. Um, no, I, I support that and I actually yeah. really appreciate that level of thoughtfulness. I was thinking more, are they gonna want us to ramp up the SRO program again and have, you know, eight SROs again, or are they thinking that this is? I don't think so. Okay. 
and they will be doing community outreach this fall. Um, they have done some notification to their community groups that they were working with this past spring and have pinky swore that they will be doing community <laughs> outreach this fall. Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, my next two questions kind of um, are a little bit related, so I'll just ask them both together. Um, my first is, you've shared a little bit on one of the slides and in the memo about what the types of activities that um, the CROs are gonna be doing. I feel like I still don't have a really good grasp of what they do on a daily basis and how that will be different and what the CROs will be doing on a daily basis. I know there's a lot of things they can be doing and I, I fully support the intent of making sure we have fully trained officers who have the relationships with the schools and the school district to be able to respond in an emergency situation that they're the best equipped to do so. I fully support that. I'm more thinking of what are the other things that they're, they're gonna be doing, right? And will it keep them busy enough? <laughs> and I know there are other, uh, the memo talks about how they will be doing other things outside of the school community in that time, but I feel like I just don't have a, enough of a sense of what that would look like. And maybe this is a conversation we can just have offline as well, just to get a little bit more of the nuances of what that's like. Um, and then my second question related to that is, how did we land on three community resource officers? Was it because of that's what we currently have and so that's what we wanted to do just for continuation of the status quo or have we measured the need based on my previous question of really what they're gonna be doing on a daily basis, what we need to do to be most prepared to keep children safe and we felt that three was um, the ideal number of CROs. So, um, uh, as far as what they'll do on a daily basis, they. Uh, Eric Karp, Sergeant Eric Karp is their first line supervisor. That's who they report to. And we're still revising a job description that will needs to be bargained. That's a change of working conditions and what that will look like. Um, but have had some pretty strong agreements on um, the type of work that could also benefit the community and benefit patrol. Um, so again, CPS complaints and a lot of things that are involved, this CPS is a big one, that if you talk to a detective or you talk to a patrol officer, they're very thankful when we have SROs to help with those calls. Um, but then assessing, it's school's open and it's September, let's do some bike patrol or let's do some enforcement as schools are coming back and we typically have additional complaints during that time about um, traffic flow in and out of different schools and there's really not enough people to address that, but um, I really delegate to Eric to set kind of the stage on what does the, what does the week look like? What are the projects that are occurring? Um, what are the presentations that we're doing this week? Um, he does a very good job in, in um, also teaching and does Alice training. He has done active shooter training for the department. So I, I can't get in the weeds too far on that. Um, but I do believe kind of what we outlined in the presentation in the memo will be other things that they've done during the summer that we would like to continue into the school year as well. Um, and very honestly, yes, we've, we had three SROs. Um, they like what they do. They're all very well trained. And so I certainly was looking at the number of schools that we have in the district um, and the number of activity that we've had in the last couple years as we've come back from COVID last year and this year, and uh, ensuring that we continue to have trained officers to respond and not losing the opportunity um, by, I guess, reassigning one back to patrol 
or eliminating a, a, a position. Um, so that's not necessarily data-driven, although there are still, you can look at the SRO dashboard and the report, I think there are 179, 176 reports. That's now over 180. So that is updating all the time. There's another arrest that occurred of an adult uh, based on a CPS investigation that shows up on there as well. Um, so there is a lot of activity still uh, that would fall to patrol if there isn't designated responders to handle those calls. I think it'd be helpful, especially for the community, to support like additional funding for this program as well, above and beyond what we're currently funding for the SRO program, to have a little bit more detail and justification as to why we're recommending three. I think that'd be really helpful to come back um, to us with that. Um, another question I have is, and this is perhaps something we can um, come back with, is really looking at our policy of how we respond to schools um, and really taking this opportunity as we're re-examining what our plan is, right, with a different type of officer and a different type of program. Um, when we won't be there kind of boots on ground on, an, on a daily basis, what that response will look like and is there anything that we can examine that we can improve? Uh, for example, I think of like the Menchie's incident where you know the incident happened and we reevaluated our policy and we said, okay, th that better aligns with our values, right? Um, is there, have we taken a look at our policy now that things will be different? We've had SROs for quite some time and times have changed, our city has grown. So I think this is a good opportunity for us to take a look at that, at what, um, how we respond to calls, right? And who responds to calls? And what does that look like? I think of, you know, my kid's school a few years ago, I got an emergency call saying that there was a stabbing in my school, in my child's third grade classroom, right? Um, come to find out that it was a pencil that was flicked in the air that happened to hit a kid's leg, right? And I can imagine in a situation like that, um, that uh, some schools and some administrators may call 911, right? And so I'd be interested, I feel like in, in this kind of stuff, the devil's in the details, right? I agree with this in theory, but I think that we really need to evaluate to make sure that um, that we set ourselves up for success, given that we don't control the policies and practices of the school district and when and for what reasons they call 911 for us to respond. Uh, so let's take the opportunity to, to look at that. Um, related to that, I'm also curious about what this will look like with our new community responder program as well and what types of calls will, I guess this may be a question both um, for you and for city manager of what our response would look like if it's a behavioral health call. Um, would we be sending community responders as well? Would, are there situations in which we'd solely be sending community responders? Um, and just what would that interaction look like? What does that look like now and what would that look like in the future I think is a really important part of this conversation as well. Um, and then finally around training and what I mentioned earlier around kind of the longer term vision where I'd love to have um, us to evaluate at least the training that all our officers uh, receive. I understand that the SRR training is extensive um, and I really appreciate that we're gonna still have qualified officers who have that training and have that skill set. I agree that's really crucial. Um, do we currently have a mechanism for our officers who undergo the SRO training to share some of that knowledge with their peers? Is there like a formal process where they, you know, share some of the stuff you talked about, like trauma-informed inf trauma response um, and some other things? Um, and I guess related to that, what training do all of our officers currently receive related to tr children and youth, and how does that compare to our SROs? I wonder if there's um, some sort of incremental additional training we could do that we could identify that either 
um, our SROs could provide, you know, lunch and learns, or I don't know what that process would look like. Um, but again, just with that vision to make sure that we have, um, given that we're acknowledging and identifying that our SROs are the ones who are most highly qualified because of the training um, and because of, you know, selection into the program as well. But um, if there's some additional training that we could look at or some knowledge sharing there, I think that would be fantastic. Thank you. Councilmember Caskell. Well, first off, I just want to thank uh, you, Sherry, and the rest of the department and um, for and the school district for for really thinking through this uh, and coming up with a you know a plan on how to move forward. I just want to say that I agree with you. We have the best officers around. Very proud of the work that the whole department does, especially the school resource officers. I have always entered this discussion with kind of three considerations in mind. One is that if we we're going to make changes, the school district had to be at the table and they had to support the change. The second was that if changes were going to be made, that those changes really should be thought of district-wide, that one part of the school community shouldn't receive higher level service than the other. And so that, so that should always be a consideration um, in how all the, the school resource officer or community resource officer program has evolves. Um, and we're a large, large school district. And then third, that regardless of any of those, that we always need to have highly trained officers that have the experience dealing with vulnerable populations such as students. Um, and, and who can, and that have the, the characteristics to develop um, trusting relationships with teenagers and folks that are, I mean, that are not always easy to, to develop uh, strong relationships with, even if you're a parent <laughs> sometimes. Um, but, you know, one of, the, one of the biggest values that I see from a program of some sort is really that conduit between the police department and or the criminal justice system and the school administration, school community, students, families, um, they're very different, um, lack of a better term, like organizations or institutions that you don't always see into. And, and if you don't have folks that kind of can cross between those, um, it's hard to get uh, answers or information. Um, I'm not saying that that's right or wrong. That's just kind of how it's unfortunately set up today. Um, and so having a way to, to have that conduit, I think, is, is really critical because these cases are often very, very tragic and really difficult um, to address. And those, unfortunately, will, that will continue no matter whether we like it or not. There always are going to be calls for service. Um, and it's, it's really heartbreaking to, 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 to see some of, of what, what happens, or at least have heard of, of things that go on, um, unfortunately. Um, so I'm just really glad that we have the resources, that we're a community that, that helps invest in that, um, that we're con constantly changing and trying to do better. Uh, you know, going forward, I, I would like to see some form of stability. Uh, we've been changing quite a bit over the last three or four years. 
I'd like to see some stability so we can gauge to see how we're doing, what that, that level of service is, where it needs to be set, right? Um, if we're constantly changing the goalposts every year, it's really hard to understand how, how well we're performing or not. Um, so that's, that's the kind of the, the key term that I would like to, to make sure gets messaged to the school district and, um, is stability. Uh, the other thing is you talked about communication. I think that we as a city working with the communication, our great communication teams at the city and the school district really would like this to be um, communicated to the, the school community at large um, and not just put it on the backs of our, our officers, right? Um, I think it's that's a big responsibility. I think there's gonna be a lot of questions. I think there'll be a lot of interest and and I think it's really important that, we, that we're proactive. Is, is proactive, because I'm actually already getting questions, I'm hearing people yeah. talk about it, a lot of concern, um, and various concern, right? And it goes across, across the board. So I think that would be good. I'd like to continue, that we continue to, to track the, the dashboards and other information. And um, I guess with all of that being said, I, I very much support our level of investment that we're, we're doing the general direction we're headed, he heading, um, and just commend you for really con continuing to kind of think about how we can, we can do better. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Nixon. Um, thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, well, I want to first start by thanking uh, you, Chief, and the department for all your hard work in bringing this uh, plan forward to us. Um, and I want to say that I support the plan that's been presented. Um, but I do ha have a couple of questions I want to ask that might be on the minds of, of some folks in our community. Um, uh, some of them have undoubtedly thought uh, of the SRO program as primarily being a deterrence <coughs> to mass shootings. Uh, you know, that in the wake of Columbine and Newtown and those sort of things, how do we stop this from happening again? And people still talk about SROs as a, a way to, to uh, deter those incidents. Um, and, and some may still feel that way even after we've had some kind of spectacular failures in that regard with like uh, Parkland and Uvalde and those kind of things where things didn't work out uh, the way that they hoped. Um, and, and some of those folks may think that we're compromising student safety uh, by removing SROs from the schools. Um, so could you comment, uh, number one, on whether you think uh, the presence of SROs, not just here but everywhere, has really been much of a deterrent. Um, and do having SROs on campuses really make a difference when it comes to this kind of incident? Um, what do you think would be the impact of this plan on the safety of our students from this kind of active shooter situation? And and I think this may have already been addressed, but can you comment on the extent to which all of our officers receive training in how to deal with active shooter situations in schools? I'll say that we, there is a presentation that we did last year, I think it was July 5th of 2022, I think. Maybe. On active shooter, so we um, do extensive training with patrol officers, the entire department on responding to active shooters. 
we have not had an active shooter in Kirkland. So to say that our SROs aren't a deterrent, um, in my experience, their relationship with administrators who are willing to tell them when they see or hear about a threat is, um, it, that's been my experience. That's what happens. Or a student will share information with a school resource officer. Um, that was the case uh, a year ago, um, right before graduation, where there were some threats being made online. Um, and there were calls to 911, but there were also calls to the school resource officer. Um, and so I think that continues to be the key in understanding the operations of the school and maintaining relationships. Uh, there's still, there still has to be contacts with administrators, um, with counselors, with staff, and, and again, in my experience, that's been the deterrent, is they're willing to share that information. Um, we have had cases that we've investigated and we've made arrests and did a full investigation to learn that the, the student that was arrested was not the culprit that they had, and that's on um, the dashboard, and it explains an arrest that occurred. Um, but that full investigation found that there was a, another student that had done a very complex, um, I guess, almost identity theft online, um, and was making those kind of threats. Hmm. So I, sh I share that to say that um, we don't just make an arrest, write a report, and are done with it. Uh, we do full investigations to ensure that, that, that's a, that what happened was correct. Um, so yes, all of our officers do active shooter training, um, and we work with other, you know, the SROs are working with the other school districts to ensure we understand all the safety plans um, for the district and um, for the other schools. I really think that the student safety also is about relationships and and having students trust you to tell you <clears throat> they've seen something or they heard something or there's something been posted online. So in your professional judgment, um, we would be safe in telling the community that student safety will be just as strong as it is today under the SRO program after we switch to the CRO program? Yes. Thank you. Um, one, one last question. Um, I, I do uh, agree with Councilmember Pascal that anytime we do a program, we ought to have success metrics. We ought to know what data that we need to be collecting in order to judge later whether it's working or whether it needs to be fixed. Um, and I know you don't have that available right now, but it, it would be interesting to understand what that data ought to be um, or what data we're collecting now about the program in order to, to track performance in the future. A, a lot of that was informed by the SRO task force, um, and it's also informed by what the state requires the school to um, report on. Um, and I, I guess I should say, you know, I've been a police officer for 30 years, and I've probably talked to you about this, that um, school resource officers are something that we've had for 30 years. So 
this is an evolving pro program. It is something different. Um, my baby cop self is saying, no, eight SROs would have been better, or an SRO in every single school would have been better. But relationships are the most important thing. Um, and for the beat officers in their district to know their schools as well. So I just had a little baby officer moment that was yelling at me <laughs> at that last question. But um, it really is about having good training, having good equipment that Kirkland has, and then having good relationships with the schools. So, and the fact that the response time might be a little bit longer is not going to make a difference in outcomes. Correct? Well, I, I can't predict that. Right, obviously. it's hard to know. But I can say my experience here is that our officers that have worked in schools have built great relationships and information is shared with them. Um, and I, because they know we'll do something with that, and if it's wrong, we'll do something with it too. Thank you. Thank you. Any further questions? Well, thank you for, oops, here's Council Member Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I don't have a lot to add. I just want to say thank you to you, the city manager, and everyone involved in this program, Evolution. I, I think this is a Kirkland Initiative future conversation because all of these policy decisions and changes are complex, and they have a lot of stakeholders. And as Councilmember Pascal said, we really want to make sure this was a collaborative process. So I support this change. My one question is we will maintain the SRO dashboard, but we will rename it so we will continue to look at these stories and this data to our Yeah, we'll definitely track that. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Sherry. And I'm glad we didn't keep you up too late. So I believe that takes us to item 8H1. Um. Yeah, so <clears throat> obviously this was moved off consent. We don't have a formal presentation, but uh, Deputy City Manager Jim Lopez is here to help me as well. So the request was for additional money uh, from council contingency in order to have our consultant do some additional public outreach we didn't originally anticipate. Um, that's primarily the work for the town hall that we have set up, um, having them available for a couple hours presenting their findings and answering questions from the community, and then the follow-up to those questions, as well as a detailed presentation to the City Council at a study session. So we did spend all of their current budget getting the study done. <coughs> it's finished. It should be out to the council either uh, late tomorrow or early Friday, um, as well as uh, out to the community. But So that was the request. The request itself is not for any additional actual studies and evaluation. It's, it's to have them available to make the presentations. So. Um, and then the fiscal note, as you saw, and the council policy, you need to make a request at one meeting and then action at a following meeting. So the study session, excuse me, the uh, fiscal note item on consent was permission to come back next council meeting with the approval. So happy to answer any questions about that if council has them. Any questions? Do we want, does somebody want to put this on the, make a motion to approve it? So, so for the city manager, um, I misunderstood. I thought we, that we were going to be taking a motion and voting on the fiscal note tonight, which is why I asked to have it pulled. Is that, is that what you want to have happen? So that's not correct. Yeah, so the, the, unless you suspended the rules to approve it, but the way it was set up is 
by acting on consent, you're asking us to bring it back to the next meeting for approval, rather than have it be an ask from the council at the end of the council meeting, which is when we traditionally do council special projects. So it's a slightly different way of doing the fiscal note, but it, because it was the council contingency funding source, which was how you originally funded the study in the first place, but that was last year's budget, so this would be the first call of this year's budget for this program. Yeah, so the, the fiscal note was to say, come back next week for action on July 18th. Um, so do you want to wait? Well, I mean, if somebody wants to move to suspend the rule so it can be moved, the fiscal note can be moved tonight, that would be fine too. It would take it off the agenda on the 18th. I'll, I'll move that. <laughs> <laughs> to suspend, I'll move to suspend the rules. Okay, so moved by Council, council Member Caspel. Second. Seconded by Council Member Vlack to suspend the rules. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Uh, opposed? Motion carries. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Uh, I move to uh, approve the fiscal note to uh, extend the contract of our Parkland consultants to support our town hall. Second. Moved by Councilmember Arnold, seconded by Councilmember Caspel. Discussion? To Councilmember Nixon. Thank you, Madam Mayor. We got there. <laughs> um, thank you. So, as, as my colleagues may remember, um, when the original $75,000 for this study was on our agenda for approval back in October of 2022, uh, I opposed it then and I voted no. And interestingly, I had to ask for it to be moved off the consent then, too. <laughs> so you might keep in mind, this is something that you shouldn't put on consent. Um, but uh, to be consistent with my previous position, um, I also should oppose extending and uh, spending more on the study, so I'll be voting no on the motion. Thank you. Any further discussion? Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I just want to explain why I'm going to support this. It, 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 this is um, really making the, um, the work that ultimately at the end of the day, I'm on record as saying that I you know, saw other ways we could have spent the $75,000 rather than on a consultant on Park Lane. But uh, that said, um, we opted to do that. And I really feel like the town hall meeting, um, which is an opportunity uh, to really hear from the public the opportunity to follow up on those public questions that we get at town hall meeting, and then the presentation to the council, which is also really a presentation to the public. I think those are important enough that I'm uh, I'm going to be supporting this, uh, despite uh, my, I guess, ambivalence, reluctance, whatever it was the first time around. Thanks. Thank you. Any further discussion, Deputy Mayor Arnold? Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. We've heard a lot from the community uh, on both sides of this. I'm looking forward to hearing from our consultant who we've asked for options for seasonal or full full closure and have that conversation with the community with the town hall. Um, this is clearly something of interest and I wanna make sure that we have support of uh, our consultant team uh, through the uh, end of this process in September as outlined in the memo. Thank you. Thank you. Question is on the motion to approve uh, the fiscal note for the future of Park Lane study. Uh, moved by Council Member, or Deputy Mayor Arnold, seconded by Council Member Paspel. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? No. The motion carries six to one. Thanks for letting me get that on the record. Thank you for getting it off the 18th agenda. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Okay, that takes us to item number 10, City Council Reports. And I think I'll start this year or this week with Councilmember Nixon. Well, thank you. Um, uh, well, there were, of course, a, a couple of big things that happened since our last meeting. And um, our staff did an excellent job on the Kirkland Initiative, including the concluding event. I'm sure others might have comments on that. But um, doing that program has been a, an ambition of mine for decades. And I, I certainly hope that we will continue to fund it to be done again and again in the future. Um, I also want to congratulate the uh, city staff on a, doing a great job on the parade. Um, I know it was a huge learning experience for them and a, a great deal of effort went in. Uh, I noticed that the parade rules were like five times as long as they used to be under KDA. <laughs> but uh, uh, fortunately, uh, we didn't have to modify anything that we did. Um, but uh, uh, just, a, just a great job, and I think the community really enjoyed it. I mean, obviously there are some folks who would like to see fireworks again, um, and we could have that discussion in the future or some alternative, but uh, just a great job. Um, in terms of looking forward, um, we have two events coming up before our next meeting. The, op the grand opening of the Totem Lake Connector, uh, which is this Saturday at 2 p.m. And then we also have the uh, grand reopening of 132nd Square Park on July 15th. And for both of those, um, haven't heard a whole lot of details about what expectations are of council members uh, for participation in the event. Uh, are we going to try to coordinate dress? Uh, you know, uh, those sort of things. Um, I understand for the Totem Lake Connector event that there, we will have parking spaces set aside at the Parks Maintenance Center. I did hear that. Um, but just wanted to put a bug in the ear of uh, Jim or Kurt or David to tell us what you expect from us at those two events, okay? We'll for sure do that. Yeah. Um, the last thing that I wanted to mention is we got a, an email earlier today about uh, uh, someone complaining about their neighbor putting out food for wild animals. And it's not a high priority issue, but I got started thinking about what I would feel like if my neighbor was doing that, and it would be an issue. And I did some research, and I think it can be addressed under the current property maintenance code. Um, but it's not explicit. The property maintenance code is kind of an oblique way of saying, well, because you're putting, up, putting food outside, it might attract rats, and attracting rats is illegal, right? As opposed to what Bellingham and Ocean Shores have done, which is clearly state you're not allowed to feed wild animals within the city limits. And I think this is something that we might want to do. I, I don't feel, though, that it rises to the level of doing an LRM today. Um, and Jay, uh, the deputy mayor mentioned earlier, we need an LRM on LRMs. <laughs> uh, what I think we might need is some way, uh, some repository of issues we want to take up in the future when our active list of issues has been somewhat depleted, right? I think you know what I mean, a queue of issues to take up. And I would put this on that queue to take up in the future, uh, but I don't, I don't, because the staff is so busy with so many things right now, I don't want to move for an LRM. Um, but I do think that's a very interesting issue. I think it happens more than we think about, and I think that 
it, it does increase the number of kind of nuisance animals going in people's yards and the danger to pets and those sorts of things. So if we can put that on that chalkboard someplace, that would be helpful. Thank you. Yeah, we do keep a running list of things like that for like miscellaneous code amendments and uh, other updates. And so that'd be the kind of thing we can, you know, as we're and opening those up, we can just kind of knock some of those out. Yeah, I mean, if you can let us know what the formal process is, you know, I'm a formal process kind of guy. I'm sorry. But, um, you know, if it really is, we just mentioned it to you, Kurt, during our one-on-ones, that would be fine too. But if there's some other way you want us to be able to submit those kind of things, um, I'd like to know what that would be. Thank you. We'll take a look. Yeah, I think it would be great to take a look at that because we are <coughs> LRMing ourselves to death or might inundating you with LRMs. Um, but I think it would be good to see a running list of issues that are out there and maybe when we do retreats or when we do those kinds of things, have those at the ready um, because things probably will fall off as well as get picked up in regular updates. Okay, Councilmember Black. Well, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, yeah, I wish the person who put out peanuts in my neighborhood would stop doing that. <laughs> I end up with peanuts all over my yard, all over my deck, all over my porch. Um, the uh, Kirkland Initiative, wonderful staff, thank you, uh, amazing. Fourth of July Parade, wonderful staff, thank you, um, just really amazing. Um, I wanted to report back uh, to my colleagues uh, about the middle housing panel that I spoke on at the Association of Washington Cities Conference in Spokane last week. Um, I just want to report back that Kirkland's uh, three years of experience with middle housing um, since we adopted it in 2020, um, and uh, specifically the many interrelated reasons why we prioritized the encouragement of middle housing um, were really well received by the audience um, at the Association of Washington Cities, uh, which for our public, uh, those are attendees from many, many jurisdictions, through, uh, city jurisdictions throughout the uh, state. Uh, so that was a really uh, well-received panel. Um, if anyone has any questions about that, let me know. I'm going to spend a little bit of extra time on the Racer Principles Assembly because it's the it was the first of its kind, um, and because I know that the Racer Agency is really important um, to uh, City of Kirkland and my colleagues on the council. So. Um, la uh, Geez, last yeah. So last last week we did have the regional crisis response agency principals assembly, um, and I just want to report that the it was very clear from the discussion and from the presentation by the executive director of the agency that the the agency is in very very good hands. Um, and the priorities that the council and the city of Kirkland. Uh, established with the creation of the Community Safety Initiative in 2020 um, clearly remain the priorities of uh, the agency. That includes a direct civilian response uh, to certain calls for service. Uh, that also includes 24-7 coverage, at least in the form of an on-call mental health professional uh, during the hours of 11 p.m. to, to 7 a.m. Um, whether or not the type and number of potential calls for service during the early morning hours justify a night shift, like an actual mental health professional on shift, is, is actually part of a current detailed uh, analysis that the agency is uh, undertaking. 
Um, so it's going to be conducting that analysis, analysis to determine whether it needs to add um, the MHPs necessary to have that, um, not just an on-call MHP, but actually an MHP on staff. I know that's something that we've talked about a lot. It was part of the community service, uh, safety initiative that we adopted, and it's important to all of us. Um, the agency is going to be reporting back the results um, of that to the partner cities uh, once we know a little bit more about that. Um, the executive director is very committed to the safety of the um, agency's mental health professionals, um, even while setting a goal for the direct civilian response and the 24-7 staffing um, that I just mentioned. Uh, agency's also uh, committed, really committed to its community advisory group. Um, and as a reminder, that's uh, an advisory group of persons with lived experience. Uh, and it's clear that the executive director of the agency is committed to, um, to that, uh, that group and has it reports that that group has been really important in developing uh, the current uh, agency's plans and programs. Um, it's expected that for the time being, hiring of, this is not going to come as a surprise to anyone, the hiring of mental health professionals is going to continue to remain a challenge uh, for the agency, uh, but the executive director is committed to hiring the very best of the best and feels confident that the agency's compensation package, which is an attractive one, uh, will attract the best. Um, a recurring theme is that the agency is basically building the plane while it's flying it. Um, so that will be a continuing challenge, but the agency seems committed to, um, not just seems, the, the agency's clearly committed to a superior level, level of service. It was really, um, it, it, you really, it, we really got a lot of confidence. Um, the, uh, as the age, this is kind of an important point, as the agency is flying this plane that it's building, it's also gonna be naturally identifying other needs within the continuum of care um, that we've, um, that we've talked about. Um, so while they're learning how to soar, they're also going to be learning that oh, we need um, you know better traffic control, and oh, we need you know lighted runways. And the principals uh, from the five partner cities uh, really made it clear that we want the agency really focused on um, being the best they possibly can, um, and. Um, if they identify those kind of gaps in continuous service, that they leverage us as the five city partner city partners um, to um, really to to understand those issues, and then we can take those and run for them while the agency really focuses on doing its job really well. Um, our partners, I just want to say, our partner cities and their principals are amazing. Um, we two of the principals have actual experience as mental health in the mental health profession. Um, one has actual direct lived experience. Uh, so a really impressive group of, of principals, really great partnership. Uh, it was a great meeting. Um, if any of my colleagues or any members of the public have any questions for me, they should feel free to email me or let staff know. Um, I'm committed to getting answers to everyone's questions, although it should be understood that some, we may not have answers to all the questions yet. All right, thanks. Great report, thank you very much. Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I just want to say that bravo to the 4th of July celebration. And um, the public may not realize, but that takes the entire city staff to put on the parade. Everywhere I look, 
I'd see, oh, there's public works, and oh, there's parks, and there's the CMO office. So um, everybody wearing a safety vest had a huge smile on their face, despite the heat, and um, it's not an easy feat, and I didn't have to be at City Hall at eight this morning. So everybody turned around and pulled that off, and then came into work and launched this meeting, and just, well done. That's not easy to do. Um, my other point is not so upbeat. Uh, Mr. Zimmerman tonight was particularly hateful, and he was speaking in opposition to his opponent running for Bellevue City Council. So my question is, is what he is doing here campaigning and inappropriate? Never mind, it's inappropriate, just his language. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to get started with an answer, Councilmember Curtis. Um, it's, uh, in the opinion of the Public Disclosure Commission, it's an unlawful use of public facilities to speak in favor of or in opposition to a candidate or a ballot proposition uh, in, a, in a public meeting. And um, that's pretty black and white, and I have personally explained that to Mr. Zimmerman. Um, in terms of how we address uh, public discourse sort of in the moment, it can be really uncomfortable. Um, we do have the ability as a legislative body to maintain order and decorum uh, and to take steps if we believe, if you believe that uh, the business of your meeting is being uh, actually disrupted to take certain steps under your council policies and procedures, and those include um, uh, a, a recess, you know, um, a, a break, where uh, staff would have an opportunity to uh, talk someone who's being disruptive into not being disruptive or into leaving, or in a, in a really difficult situation to be removed. There are other things, too, that uh, council can consider. I mean, one is that although it's a strong policy um, priority for the council and for the city of Kirkland to hear from community members, um, items from the audience is an opportunity that you have decided as a body to give the community. Uh, and you've, you, you don't have to extend that. I know you want to and you will. You could limit remarks to uh, items on your agenda. Some jurisdictions have done that. Um, we haven't. And it's really hard in, in the moment to say that's not related to business before us. But I, so those are just things for us as a city to think about. Um, I'm assuming, I think we all assume that we're gonna continue to wanna hear from community members, whether you wanna decide to uh, limit remarks to items on your agenda is something you could consider. I don't think it's probably where you want to go, just based on my experience of the council. But finally, and then I'll stop, uh, thank you for letting me um, share some thoughts on this. I think the final issue is if someone is being actually disruptive to the meeting, uh, there's an opportunity that we, we would have to seize in the moment to uh, pause take a recess and try to calm things down or or remove someone who's being disruptive. Thank you for that. Yeah. And I don't think any of us want to require people to speak specifically to the agenda. 
Um, but I, and I was asking specifically about the PDC yeah. and campaigning yeah. and whether it's appropriate to prevent him from. Yeah, the the answer to the answer to that is no. And uh, with respect to Mr. Zimmerman, I mean, um, Deputy City Manager Lopez and I have asked him several times to just, you know, if we start out items from the audience saying we expect everyone to be treated with dignity and respect, and those are values that the city has, and that's why you are welcome to come to city council meetings at Kirkland and share your views, even though you're not welcome some places because of those views. You are welcome here, but you need to be respectful, and we encourage you to please do that, and don't disrupt our meeting. Um, and um, it's a working process. It's a very difficult situation, and we've, we've been working hard to sort of uphold our values and also um, not have outbursts during special presentations or to um, have um, off-topic speeches that are, are hurt people, including you. Thank you. Thanks for letting me speak. Councilmember Falcon. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, thank you for asking that, Councilmember Curtis. That was the first thing on my list to mention, and I've been able to cross that off. So, yes, thank you, um, City Attorney, for your uh, thoughtful response on that. Um, I just want to echo the kudos for the Kirkland Initiative and all the staff that worked on that and all the community members who came out and participated and gave so much of their time to learn about um, city and city operations. Um, one of my favorite parts of the night was um, hearing and reading all the comments from participants and what it meant to them. I'd love to, to see those. Um, also, just in speaking with some of the participants, you know, I, I heard from one of them just in a one-on-one -on -one conversation that um, they've been here for, I think, eight years, and this is the first time that they felt like they belonged in this community. Um, and that was pretty powerful because that's you know why we're doing this, right? We want more folks to know that they belong here, to be confident that they belong, that they belong in engaging with our government as well. And so that's just, I think, was such a beautiful testament to the work that staff did. So thank you, thank you, thank you for all your work on that. The parade, yes, was awesome yesterday. Thank you to everybody who came out. I'm curious if we have a head count because just the crowd seemed massive. Um, it, it felt really good, a really uh, positive day of community coming together yesterday, and it was just a lot of fun. Um, and I, I also have heard, I think, I, I don't even know how many messages I got last night from folks, from friends and neighbors saying, where are the fireworks? And I um, agree with our reasons for not doing that. I think there's very clear reasons uh, why we're not moving forward with fireworks. And I would love for us to look into doing a drone show in the near future for July 4th. This is something that I know um, Redmond has been doing for Derby Days. And um, I hear they do it for about the same length of a typical um, fireworks show. And it, their cost has been less than what fireworks have cost in the past. And so I think it's definitely something working worth looking into as technology is changing, as, as it's becoming more popular, perhaps there's more uh, companies that are providing this service that we could look into that and maybe even partnering with other cities to do, you know, just save some money that they do a show over one city and then come to, you know, another city to do a show. There might be some partnerships um, to save money as well. So I would love for us to at least look into costing what that would be for next year. Uh, and I think that would kind of uh, make some of the folks who missed fireworks happy, perhaps not all of them, um, but would be a really cool experience. I was there last year for the Redmond's first um, drone show and it was 
awesome. It was so beautiful. It was so fun. And, um, and they're doing it again this year. So for those of you who didn't get a chance to check it out last year, I hope that you'll be able to check it out this year at their Derby Days. Um, I'm just seeing now one of my notes going back to the Kirkland Initiative. I know I've said this so many times, both in public meetings and also to staff, that I would love, love, love for us to, um, in the future, add a youth-focused one as well. Um, and we heard that from one of our participants as well. I was so excited to hear her say that because um, I've heard that from a lot of folks in the community as well, that they would love, uh, you know, for, I know we have other ways for youth to get engaged, um, but I love that the focus of this particular initiative was not just to re-engage with folks who already are really engaged with the city, but also to be very, um, to be very uh, intentional in reaching out to folks who um, have been historically excluded from engaging with local government and haven't had that same level of interaction. And I would hope that we would do something similar with the youth, folks that perhaps wouldn't see themselves on the, on the youth council or wouldn't see themselves engaging in other ways that we'd be able to, to capture some of those folks and um, help encourage some future leaders in our community, which would be pretty awesome. Um, and yeah, looking forward to some of the other things like the, the TLC Bridge and 132nd Square Park ribbon cuttings coming up. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Councilmember Patrick. Well, I don't really have much to add beyond what's said, been said, but just echoing the, the thanks and praise uh, both on past events and looking forward to the future events here. Thank you. Super. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Uh, one addition, on Thursday, June 29th, I was able to attend the Puget Sound Regional Council Safety Summit. This was a mix of transportation staff, elected officials, advocates, and the general public talking about Vision Zero, how we uh, get to no serious injuries or fatalities within our transportation system. There were national speakers from the U.S. Department of Transportation, experts and other nonprofits. A couple of takeaways I wanted to share. It's the safe system approach, singular. That was new to me. We want to build a single system uh, and, and think about it that way and not in, in different silos. Uh, managing speeds was the biggest impact, no pun intended, action that, that, that you can take. And then a lot of uh, discussion on how to move quickly, and there's lots of federal funding available for pilots and innovation. The discussion that happened at PSRC will be uh, in, in the breakouts and the ideas generated will be part of a regional safety plan that PSRC will be developing next year. Thank you. Anything else happen at PSRC? Uh, I mentioned this at our last meeting, but it, it is official. The Greater Kirkland Downtown was designated as a regional growth center. This uh, more or less doubles the uh, different pots of funding that we are eligible for for transportation improvements in our greater downtown area, which includes Moss Bay and the station area. Thank you for that. Okay, I will wrap it up with, and I'm sorry, the Kirkland Initiative was probably, I was so proud of you all, uh, not just how staff did it, but how engaged that group of people were, both with themselves and with our city, and how excited they were. So that was, that was amazing. I can't wait to be part of more of those. Um, the parade, and I have to say this, uh, you know, for 23 years at 6 o'clock in the morning, I would arrive in downtown Kirkland, and I would meet a police officer. 
And that's the first car I would see uh, when I got there on Saturday morning, or on 4th of July morning, I counted over 25 Kirkland vehicles <laughs> throughout downtown. It was really incredible. And, and, and what I have to say, and, I, and I've already said this to Lynn, but I want to say this to staff, to all of you who are involved in it, um, I had hoped that transitioning the 4th of July to the city of Kirkland was going to be successful. And I, but my biggest worry was that it was somebody else's event and we sort of foisted it on the, on, on the city. They had a lot of energy around the new events that they created during, the, during COVID. I, I didn't see that transitioning naturally and I was wrong. I, I, I loved our city yesterday. It was beautiful. Um, the pride with which all of the staff folks worked with the volunteers, with, with each other, even, even the response from all the police folks who were working, not just working the parade, but working to set up um, for the pic picnic in the afternoon. I just want to say thank you. I never thought that this would happen. <laughs> um, and uh, I went home after the parade and put my feet up. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, the only other things I have to add are uh, I did uh, participate, and I think, Kimi, you did too, in the racial um, healing training that, um, what's her name? Kalika Curry. Kalika Curry led, and I was very impressed uh, at the level of professionality that, that she exhibited and in the, in the intense connection that she's got with that work. So I think that was a very worthwhile event. Also had a four cities meeting down in my favorite place to go, Lake Taps, uh, with the cities of Buckley, Sumner, Auburn, Bonnie Lake, um, and to talk about issues around the lake. Um, they are incredibly pleased at everything that, that uh, Cascade has been able to do with the lake. They feel like we are real true partners with their cities. And now they're investigating whether or not they're going to help us a little bit with some of the, the um, infiltration of um, invasive plants and and stuff in the in the lake, and that's that's a that's a really positive outcome. Um, and the other thing is that I we, I met with the large cities, which are like Auburn and Renton and those guys, last week, and all of them had attended AWC. There was a great deal of consternation around the TOD discussion that's already going on. So it's something for you, Councilmember Curtis, I think, to pay some attention to. Um, there is no consensus on what that's going to look like. Um, so I think we need to connect early on with whoever is going to be developing those bills. And with that, I'll turn it over to you, City Manager. Okay, uh, thank you, Member. So let me start just with calendar first, because then I have a couple topics to, to cover. But is there any calendar changes or updates that any council member wants? Um, I also want to give you positive uh, feedback from Allison Zyke, who's been paying attention to this. And she said that they do keep a, and she's actually the keeper of it. So she literally wrote down what Council Member Nixon asked about in terms of the uh, issues. So um, just a, a sentence or two about LRMs versus a regular discussion item. So. The purpose of the LRM and the work program is the in-between stuff. So like we always do a miscellaneous zoning code update and if a council member has a comment from the council says, hey, next time you're doing the miscellaneous zoning code, could you look into this? That's, that doesn't really need an LRM. If it's 
hey, I'd like to change the code next week. You'd want to do an LRM to say, what would that take, right? So maybe that helps talk about it a little bit. But not everything needs an LRM. It's just that you're asking that we do it as part of our normal process if we're updating a plan or updating policies anyway. So hopefully that helps. But anyway, Allison has that noted, and uh, they keep a running tally of those things. But seeing no calendar updates, I just wanted to talk a little about the Pride crosswalk options and also a little about its related social media implications, although I'll save that part for the next council meeting um, or maybe an email. Uh, so as all of you know, we've been assessing the Pride crosswalk and what could be done. I've had a chance to talk with uh, a lot of you individually, but I wanted to share with you that um, essentially because we have some time, there are some options. Um, one of the reasons that our options were a little more limited to the thermoplast was the direction to want to get the Pride Crosswalk in by June 1st uh, for Pride Month. Um, what I think you all know is that we do need to fix the crosswalk. Um, the most straightforward way to fix the crosswalk would be to replace it completely with new thermoplast. Um, that's also the most expensive option. That would take about the same 30000 that we originally spent out of our um, funds to, to make it happen, um, our cultural funds. Um, one really piece of good news that I want to share with all of you, Councilmember Curtis was actually helped prompt this. Uh, Carrie Pravitz, who's the community engagement uh, person for the, this region for Amazon, um, has talked to her folks, and they actually want to contribute towards whatever we can do to fix the crosswalk. So they're pledging to as much as $20,000 to find a fix. Um, like us, they want to make sure that if they do that, that the money spent in a way that is not going to be immediately lost by yet another round of vandalism. So. I uh, had a chance to talk with her today. I'm very grateful for that op option, and, and they're going to be communicating that with you all um, soon. But she couldn't be here tonight, but she wanted to make sure that you all knew that. She's also going to be talking to other businesses to see if they'll also contribute and find a way that maybe this can be fully funded and not by, by the city. So, But working your way back from the 30000 back, we're also looking at a couple other options. One option is uh, to essentially patch with thermoplast in places over the damage. Um, we're trying to figure that out. That's a little bit difficult as well because all these are specialty colors that we had to, to look at. Uh, we're also evaluating, I think you may have seen an email that just happened today. Um, Leanne Skipton, who's our facilities manager, used to work at Redmond and she remembered what I'll describe as a super power washer <laughs> that Redmond had acquired. Uh, so they did bring it over to test it out and it did um, improve the situation. They weren't able to put it on all of the marks because they had to take it back. Uh, but we're going to be assessing if they can come back. It also got our streets crew pretty excited about that piece of equipment. <laughs> so now they're asking me, can we get one? Because uh, it might have a lot of other applications. So we're actually going to look at that as well, um, not just for this crosswalk, but for a way to, to clean our um, streets and thermoplast. So that, that could be something you might see as a, as a future request. Uh, we're also looking at the issue of potential paint. Um, it may be possible to get paint. Um, that's also got to be specialty made and delivered, and so we're not totally sure about that one or its potential cost. And then finally, of course, there would be the option of you could, you could eliminate the crosswalk. Um, you could grind it down, and you could replace it back with a normal crosswalk. Um, and some discussion has been, do you find another way to create a banner, a different painting, a different place that you might paint something? Um, so we, we just know we need to look at that in the spectrum of things as well. Um, but we're also trying to look at options such as new uh, cameras that could have better um, you know, infrared capability and so forth that would give us better pictures. We do know eventually that's a challenge no matter what because 
simply not having license plates or covering faces with masks sort of defeat the best possible camera anyway, because not much you can see except a really good view of a vehicle with no license plates. So I uh, want you to know we're looking at all of these things, and I want to see if Council has any particular feedback that you want to share tonight. But we're going to try to cost all these things out and bring them back for action. But we're trying to be thoughtful so that we don't do something that could immediately be destroyed again, and we're just sort of in this endless cycle. But we are trying to make sure we have options for Council um, and we're continuing to try to repair even as we're looking at all these options. So with that, I'll, I'll see if you have questions. Go for Councilmember Tuckstone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, thank you, City Manager. Thank you so much for looking into this and being very responsive and very um, quick uh, in, our, in the city's response. I've heard a lot of positive feedback about not only the sign, that the A-frame signs, but the banner that's up there. So thank you so much um, to staff for doing that and for doing that so quickly and so thoughtfully. That's getting a lot of positive shares in the community. I know we hear a lot about the negativity, but I just want to say we're getting a lot of positive feedback on that, so thank you for that. Um, we need to be fiscally responsible, and we cannot let the haters win. That's my lens here, right? So this really makes me want us to go bigger and bolder with what we're doing. When we had this conversation, we um, I know we've uh, talked about extending it to, this was a short-term thing we were doing, and then part of that conversation was longer-term, looking at street art in general, including potentially additional pride crosswalks throughout the city. I know I had expressed a desire to have some in close proximity to schools in particular, knowing that um, just, you know, as we heard from some of the comments tonight, the mental health harm that a lot of our um, students and, and youth in the pride community face on an everyday basis. And so I would love to know, you know, how this would fit in with that analysis that we're doing with what we can do moving forward longer term with doing a series of um, public art, street art, right, in the future. Um, is there any economy of scale with some of the materials if we were to do, I know these are like you said, very specific and unique colors that we need for this. If we were to do a certain quantity of them throughout the city, is there economy of scale of doing that since we're not in as much of a rush? Can we take a look at that and just see, uh, I'd like for that to be part of the options that we look at is how can we do more of this as part of that, um, that planning that we're already starting to do looking for uh, the bigger picture. Thank you. Further discussion? Councilmember Curtis. I'm sorry, City Manager. Did you say when you were going to bring us options back? Well, I'm hoping as quickly as possible, right? We're looking, we're hoping to have more information, even more for you by the 18th. So the only thing I can tell you is I know we can replace it with thermoplast for $30,000, you know, in around six weeks, but I okay. don't know that that's, we don't have any much more information than that, right? The other options are still being evaluated. Okay. Um, yes, we do need to be physically fiscally responsible, but I don't want to be bureaucratic and wait too long to move forward. Mm. What's really been com become clear is this is why we need these public symbols, is we need to uh, support our community as best as possible. And in my conversation with Amazon, they were really clear that they support and applaud our efforts and that they admire us for our stance in supporting the LGBTQ community and they want to help us however they can. So I do appreciate their effort. So um, yeah, I want to move forward. It, it's really clear, clear to the community that they're really proud of this. I don't want to wait too long before we fix it. Thank you, Thank you for that. I, one of the things we're going to be evaluating in the context of this is the fact that it's a crosswalk does complicate this. 
Um, and we are trying to think that through, right? Versus it being something big and bold and not in a crosswalk. <laughs> so, because uh, it just it just puts a layer of of safety and specification over the top of all of it that that makes it harder. So I guess I would just say to the council that while we're looking at all these options, that may be one that we come back to you with too and say um, that you know maybe to your comment, Councilman Falcone. Doing them all in crosswalks may not be the right way to do this if we want to do something that's uh, sustainable, replicable. Uh, so anyway, just we're learning, learning, learning about this constantly. That's I think that's a different conversation than this crosswalk. But I think that you, uh, we're really learning a lot from this. I think we're proud of the fact that we have done it. I think we're proud of the fact that we're learning. But this is a big, we're taking a lot of national feedback and hits on this that we're trying to learn from and I think trying to take the best of why we did this and um, maximize our chance to do it even better in a way that's, I, I want to keep saying more defensible, defensible in the sense of like from the attacks, right? It's mm -hmm. just, it's in a really difficult spot and it's a really hard to figure out what to do. So anyway, we're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to get better and better and better at all this. I just want you to know it's, what's that? Brilliant. Resilient, yes, there we go. Uh, a more resilient strategy. So, um, anyway. But may I respond? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is why we take these actions, yeah. right? And the, the benefit of a crosswalk is it's something that people interact with as opposed to a mural on the wall. It's, mm -hmm. it, it's an action, it's a physical symbol that we are interacting with. So, pro crosswalk. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to wrap it up. I'm, I'm pro cross, crosswalk. I want it back soon. And I personally think paint's a better idea because we might have to defend it again. Mm -hmm. If there's a way to booby trap it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we are evaluating things like that too, like elevating the crosswalk. And just I just want you to know, like there, there's no option we're not evaluating right here um, on this. So I also think that we should en engage our LGBTQ community in a discussion about things that we might do that would accomplish what Councilmember Falcone is talking about with regard to sort of labeling ourselves um, in support. And finally, again, for this will be for later, but I just I want to say that also brought up a huge issue of social media and comments, right? And the policy around posting comments and not posting comments. Um, and the tactic which we I guess could have thought through and didn't, but the fact that when, if you close anything, people were posting everywhere. And so we are updating our policies to get at some of those issues. We'll send more information about that. Um, as I said to all of you, we're not gonna do anything that says like we won't have comments without a full discussion of the council. I might suggest to you a mini focused retreat on this topic, you know, maybe for a couple hours at some point. Um, but I want you to know there's two things that already were in place that we're now using. One is we've always said the comment has to be topical to the post. And so when we first got kind of got overwhelmed by take people taking a social media post on Juanita Beach Park and putting a bunch of things about the Pride Crosswalk, we we can delete those because they're not on the topic of, of that. Um, and the second thing is we are allowed to save, retain, but hide comments that don't meet the community standards. So we're, we're looking at all of those things as we're trying to do this appropriately, but we'll come back to you with much more information on that. And like I said, probably have to have a a uh, focused discussion with the council about the social media policy on comments. So I'm uh, happy to answer any questions if you have on that. Looks good. Okay, so those were my um, 
two big updates. Um, anything else from the council before I wrap up the city manager report? See none. Okay. Thank you, Madam. That's all I have. You're done. That's it. We're done. We are adjourned. Thank you very much. And look, it's only seven minutes after ten. Thank you.